podcast. Tonight we're going to talk about my our journey as writers. Um, Jilly is joining me. We um, I started writing seriously when I was twelve, but I've been a storyteller since I learned to talk. Um, I when I was uh, when I first got published, um, one of my cousins sent me a T-shirt uh, that said um, it's a big old lie actually because it's you know not true, but um, it said I lied for a living. So I lie for a living because you know writers lie, but um, I didn't actually make a living as a writer. So most most writers don't. To be truthful, um, it's cause it can't be about that. It it can't be about the money ever because it's not going to. It'll just disappoint the fuck out of you. But um, the reason this has been on my brain lately is I'm a huge fan of Adam Savage. I uh, I'm subscribed to Tested on YouTube. That that's his YouTube channel, and I watch a lot of his content. And he recently got a question about um, there were there were two questions answered in this in this particular segment of, that he did it was a question and answer session, and they did they break it up into little videos um, for content purposes on on his channel. And this was this this particular video was about two questions, one of which was how to handle critical feedback <clears throat> about his projects as a maker, and the other was about retirement. And I joked last year about um, retirement, and my the, <laughs> the spiteful little joke was, is that if, if you wanted to read me on AO3, you'd have to wait till I retired, and it'd be about a decade from now, or whatever. You know, I was just being an asshole, um, to be truthful about it. And the person who asked me this question got really bent with me about it. And I don't give a shit. Um, because I have no interest in being on AO3. <clears throat> and the only way I would be is if I lost the ability to maintain my website and I retired. Now, when he was talking about... Um, <clears throat> when he was talking about retirement, he said he had no intention of ever retiring. Uh, that he's a maker. And that he'll always be a maker. And it reminded me, I was talking, I was thinking about when I when I used to talk about, when I talk about writers and how they're born. Um, and I, I guess there will become a point when I stop sharing my work in public, but I don't see myself not being a writer until I'm like physically and mentally incapable of doing it. Now, there are reasons why that can happen. Obviously, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, um, arthritis, uh, uh, there are things that can take the physical craft away from me and other things that can take the mental craft away from me. And it's a concern. I, I, I can't say it's not because when you have fibromyalgia and I was diagnosed several years ago, um, one of the things that comes with it is brain fog. And there have been times when I have picked up my own writing and thought, who the hell wrote this? Well, I wrote it, but I don't remember writing it. <laughs> it is so disconcerting to read something that you know you wrote but that feels unfamiliar. And there's a it's variety of reasons. Read somebody else's story. Yeah. But there can be a variety of reasons where I, you, you could have been medicated when, but brain fog can certainly make it happen more often, but you could have been medicated. You could have been well drunk. <laughs> I mean, I've, <laughs> I have, I have, I have drunk written more than once. Um, you could have just been in a really weird mood or you're really tired or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why your reading, your writing might feel unfamiliar to you on any given day. Um, but it, it, it is, it is just profoundly disconcerting to, to pick up something that is in your folder 
that the style is like you, but that you go this, I don't remember writing this. Um, yeah, that is, and, and you know, I don't look forward to the day when I, and, and you know, you know, it's going to come when most of my writing feels that way, you know, um, I don't want to have to keep logs <laughs> going. Um, this is what I wrote on this day. So that I would go so that I can prove to myself that I wrote something. Ugh. Well, I have actually been using that um, writing bot to do exactly that. Oh, I really? log every day and because I am using, I am using the project list. It, it can tell me what I wrote on a certain day because of the channel, you know? Um, That's true. Yeah. And it, it, it honestly, I mean, the idea of keeping a log of your writing sounds kind of agonizing but the other side of it is is that it's actually a relief because if I think to myself when did I write this if I go back to that thing I've done where I reported my word count I I know exactly when I wrote it and even if I don't necessarily remember what I wrote I know that I did write it 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 gives me a sense of security that was missing I find it very relieving yeah I had kind of um I guess you could say um slacked off using the bot and then I found that there was a lot of stuff. Well, for starters, I'd also put some stuff in the bot that was inscrutable. Like I'd put code names or put inscrutable names in. And I was like, what the hell is that? I don't have any idea what that project is. I don't. And then there's stuff that had all the wrong word counts. And like, I have whole stories I've never tracked in it. Um, and for a while there, I think it was actually really helpful for me to give a feel for how what I was writing and how much writing I was getting done and um, it helped me get a feel for my productivity and and that I was still engaged with my writing even when I sometimes didn't feel like I was and Mm -hmm. and I think that that matters sometimes because there are times when because there are actually times when I have felt profoundly unproductive when I was very productive because sometimes your perception of your writing is actually not matching the reality of your writing um, <laughs> I'll tell you guys a little bit of story about that. Early, like last year when we announced the Big Moxie, I put all my ideas down what I wanted to do for the Big Moxie. And then I wrote them all, except for one that I'd already had written. Um, I wrote the Sentinel fic. I wrote the Soulmate fic. Um, I finished Honey Trap for the first Big Moxie. Uh, and then I have part two of Requiem, um, which will fit the other Big Moxie topic. Uh, and it's in second draft right now. Now, the whole time I was doing this, month, I was thinking, to myself, I am so fucking unproductive right now. This is ridiculous. And, I'm just, and then I realized I had written upwards of 125K in two months. I'm doing okay. <laughs> I'm really doing okay. I need, to, I need to be a little less critical of myself, right? Because I was like, I don't know why I thought I hadn't accomplished anything. And I think it's because both of... Well, all three of the projects I did that I put together outside of Requiem for the Big Moxie are not, um, they're, they're in the 50 to 60K range. Um, when I was doing 110, 120K, then I realized something about those particular ideas that um, was a telling factor in why my word count was so skewed. And I had talked in private to the mods about how I was really concerned about... The fact that I wasn't meeting my what I thought my word goal would be for these particular books, it's because they're contemporary. They're contemporary romances. They're they're. I'm throwing down a Harlequin structure like a bitch, and didn't even <laughs> realize it. I'm hitting Harlequin desire like a boss. 
<laughs> as far as like word count and structure goes. Um, <laughs> it's really funny because fantasy and science and science fiction, you have to have a lot of room to move, you know, and grow and, and world build that you do not need in contemporary romance novels. And so I had like this one idea in my head of what I should be producing and I wasn't meeting that goal and I felt like I was just falling apart. It was really disconcerting only to realize. And I think Shadow, you were part of that conversation I had about my word count not, not, not being right and I was feeling like I wasn't that I was, <laughs> I was going crazy. <laughs> I think that was I think I think you were in that convo. Um but it was just the contemporary structure that I was meeting and I think handling very well. I think you guys are really going to love what I did for my soulmate fic. I um I basically had a year long love affair with, with Eddie Diaz this year. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> As much as I love Buck and I love Christopher, I feel like Eddie is my unicorn <laughs> in 911. I, I'm just, I, that's just where I am. I mean, I um, I really enjoyed my Sentinel fic where he comes online. Um, and they think he came online for one reason, but he actually came online for an entirely different reason. Um, and he comes home and his, his four-year-old son, and uh, he's, I, it's just, I... I'm really in love with it. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. It's called Love Comes Around, and it's my Sentinel fix. So it'll be it'll be out at the end of June, right? Is, is, I mean, isn't that when we're doing Sentinel? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So you guys will be reading that very soon. But anyways, I wrote all these basically contemporary stories in this short format, fifty-five to six, fifty-ish to sixty k. <coughs> I know some of you thinking, Kira, that's not short. It, it is kind of for me. It's not what I intended. <coughs> Um, but I feel better now that I've had that realization. And sometimes you need to have that realization about your, about your product that you're not, um, uh, I just, I got wrapped around the axle about the, this, this word count thing. I'm really usually very good about looking at my word count or at my zero draft and saying, okay, this is going to be about 50, this is going to be about a hundred K. And so I was looking at these zero drafts I did, and if they had been set in a fantasy world or in science fiction, they would have been every bit of 100K, but they're not. And it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. And I had this realization actually while I was, while I was writing Intangible, because Intangible is set in a semi-magical world. I mean, it's like it's contemporary and there's there's these magical elements that are kind of embedded into it um, that I avoided explaining as, as much as possible um, because it really wasn't about them. It wasn't about the ghosts or the sprites or Jax, who's my favorite OC ever. There's something amazing Jax. about riding a little demon. Your little demon was great. <laughs> Who has no fucks to give. He just... One of my favorite scenes is when he's, you know... Humble bragging about banging a sprite and getting it done <laughs> <laughs> to Eddie in his kitchen, despite the size differences. <laughs> it just—it really made my day. <laughs> in his Tom Ford suit, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that's when I realized what I was—the kind of pressure I was putting on myself—that was really dumb. I was like, "Well, no wonder you dumbass." <laughs> It was just like, look what you're doing. Just look what you're doing. So, yeah. 
But that video that he did, he talked about um, constructive. He talked about critical feedback, and um, the questioner asked, you know, when do you stop sharing with people who don't support you, basically. Um, and Adam had a really great response to that. One of the things I like about Adam Savage a lot is that he considers himself a storyteller. And he he is very invested in his uh, his workspace and his, his maker space and what it means to be a maker, what it means to be a creative person. And I really, really enjoy that about him. Um, I really like the ownership that he allows himself over the things that he does. And one of the struggles that I had as a young writer was finding that ownership. And in fandom, I think that's particularly interesting because we talk about the creation of characters, the original characters. We talk about using fandom characters and being in character. We talk about tropes that are that are used over and over and over and over again. And one of the things that I strive to do as a writer in fandom, which is my writing safe space, um, is to have ownership over the tropes that I use to make them unique to me. And we're not talking about ideas because there aren't that many. They're like 7 to 11 depending on the philosophy. Um, it isn't about that. It's about the the narrative, the story that you're bringing to the table. And as Jillian and I demonstrated a couple years ago, and Lightholder participated as well, um, that we all three took a, a prompt and wrote it and got different things out of it. And sometimes the same thing. And, and sometimes the same thing. <laughs> I, I think mean, our closest is probably... The one the closest, mm, the one with Ian yeah. Edgerton. The, the Edgerton Although, one is the hardest. He got banged in mine, and he didn't get banged yeah. in yours. <laughs> but <laughs> there could have been banging in mine. But the thing is, when somebody, <laughs> the, the beginning of them, when somebody just because somebody went looking for was looking for the story, they're looking for Kira's, I think. But they're looking for, and their description of it, they only describe the beginning. And from the beginning, the stories were, the description could have been hers or mine. There was like no way to tell which one she was talking about based upon the description. Without getting past that setup of them at the gun range, mm -hmm. they were, they were, the, and the thing is we hadn't compared notes. We just had kind of gone the same direction. Now I went, I went an angstier direction in the resolution of that scene at the gun range and Kira went, hey, let's get, let's have sex direction. Um. So if somebody said, and then they got laid, and like, oh, that's Francisco. <laughs> All right, it's like if if they had said, um, and then you know, and then they got laid, and be like, oh, that's Kira's story, and like, and then they had an angsty talk in a bar. Oh, that's Julie's story. You know, I mean, that became the defining characteristic of in terms of describing the stories. But they were so much alike in the beginning. I was like, it was like head scratching reading the beginning of it. I was like, why well, people are gonna think we compared notes? Um, but we didn't. That was the thing. We actually published at the same time and did not. One of the most frustrating experiences I had during that experiment was that she was complaining about, she wasn't telling me the content of her story. It was about the um, the Sentinel emergence on Atlantis. But she was complaining about her inability to do something with McKay. Mm -hmm. now, I and did I already figured out the solution. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't share it with her because that wasn't the point, right? That, that wasn't the point. <laughs> right. So when we published them, like her her comment was, "Oh, of course." <laughs> right. Now I did I did solve my problem in a different way, but mm -hmm. it I, I, it was one of the slowest of the prompts to come out because um, 
it was a case of I, I stalled out trying to solve this one. Basically, it felt like a consent issue to me. Um, and so I had to kind of resolve that issue in my own head to kind of fix it so that it, it didn't it didn't like ruin my my you know desire to even post the story. And then, you know, Kira had a really obvious solution to the problem, but she wasn't like going to, you know, it, if it had been a, a different kind of project, if I'd come to her and said, hey, I need some help with this, she'd have, we'd have, we'd have, we'd have, you know, brainstormed it and gone with it. But in this, um, in this context, you know, she waited for me to do it and we put them out. And those two stories, I think from soup to nuts are the closest thematically, but it was also the narrowest prompt. Yeah, um, yeah, it was a very narrow prompt because we wanted to do like some broad prompts and some narrow prompts to demonstrate um, what it would mean for two writers to have the same idea. We were basically exploring the two cake theory. Right. And the result is, is that, yes, two cakes are better than one, but two identical cakes are not great. <laughs> no. No. And. And, and we proved obviously that two writers can ha can go into the same idea, and they don't end up duplicating each other. No, even and if your ideas know. are very close. I mean, and honestly, if you gave Kira and I, you could even go a more granular level. You could give us basically a rough sketch of a story idea and say, these are the these are the main narrative points you have to hit. Um, and by main narrative points, I'm talking about like a five a five of like a five act structure kind of thing where you're talking about inciting event plot point one plot point two climax falling action that kind of thing you could actually give us that five points and say these are your five points and each of you go and execute it it's going to still feel very different it's going to be executed very different the character dynamics are going to be even if we have the same character if we took a buck and eddie romance and you gave us the same basic acts, say five acts. We're not structure. asking you to, by the way. We're not asking. No, no, you. no, no. I, I would never. I would. I would. I would never. I would never go to ask for a community prompt. Um, but if we don't want your prompt, we, we would come up. We would come up with our own. Okay, we're capable of plotting our own shit. But anyway, um, if we had the same five, you know, plot points, and said, "Hey, go, go forth and do this," right? Um, it would still come out differently because we're different writers and we focus on things different and we interpret the characters differently. And even if we're marching towards the same basic climax, right? You know, so basically when you talk about like a five act structure, you're talking about like there's an inciting incident, you've got a, a, a turning point one, another, another twist, then you've got um, your climax, you've got some falling action. And if you said that the climax is they get together or whatever, or there's a, there's a plot twist here. There's a betrayal, how we interpret all of those events going to be very different. And so you could take, you could go to that more granular place of not just a prompt and go, here's a basic five act structure, go execute this. Yes. It'd be great to have two stories that follow that. And that's basically what happens when somebody gives a very, what I would call a very specific prompt where you have all of these things that have to happen and it gets posted up on some site like Tumblr or whatever. And a bunch of people write it. That's basically what's happening is they're all there's, basically there's following. In, um, there, there's, there's, there's a pretty big one in Harry Potter called Reptilius challenge where Harry has um, died repeatedly and he's died again. And he's he's been called upon to answer for his crimes of dying over and over again in front of his reaper. 
And his reaper's about to get fired. <laughs> because he can't keep Harry Potter alive to meet his destiny. And it's up to you as the writer to decide how many times Harry Potter has died. Um, and one of the one of the one of the lines in the prompt is that the Reaper has to tell Harry Potter that his soulmate is some Granger girl. <laughs> Sister Harry Hermione prompt. Um, and so there are a couple elements. He has to die over and over and over again. He gets to go back and do it again, but remember it. Hermione's his soulmate, and so there's a whole bunch of these. Um, and there's a there's, there's actually a community on fanfiction.net dedicated to this particular prompt. Um, I have rarely seen that prompt finished. <laughs> I don't know why. Right. I mean, yeah, it's just, maybe it's because it's too big or people get, you know, they're not, they're, they're writing by committee or they or they get too invested in the prompt or I don't know. Um, I had never, I've never been tempted by that prompt. Um, I've seen it finished once or twice, maybe, maybe three times, but, um, some of them aren't even online anymore. Uh, <clears throat> It's just, it's a very specific prompt. So there's a whole bunch of these stories that basically start the very same way. Harry's in the waiting room, like he's in Beetlejuice, waiting for his reaper. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> he goes there the is. Reaper and his reaper is pissed off. <laughs> for those of you who are familiar with um, the Halloween stories in Buffy, it's probably the biggest trope in Buffy is the um, yet, yet another Halloween fic. Um, and there were some specific challenges put out about the Halloween stories. And one of them was very specific, which was that Xander went dressed as a Spartan. Um, I think it was called Ship of the Line Challenge or something like that. Yeah, that's what the Halloween thing is. is you, it, it's, the Halloween spell turned everybody in Sunnydale. For those of you who don't know Buffy, every, the Halloween spell that, uh, what's his face, um, cast, um, turned everybody in in Sunnydale into Ethan. Thank you. It turned everybody into their costumes. And in Xander's case, especially we see that some of that, that's because Xander in Canon went as a, just a generic army officer. Now people had various interpretations and inter play with that in at interpreting Canon, but in Canon, he, he retained some of the memories, which is why he was able to, figure out how to use a rocket launcher and he was able to, you know, shape explosives and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a really long um, series where he goes as a Jedi. Um, I think that's millions of words. Um, and that, that stays with him and he becomes an actual Jedi. So fictional Jedis exist, you know, the Star Wars universe still exists. And yet all of a sudden he has these Jedi abilities and he knows how to create a lightsaber and all that jazz. Um, and that, I believe that's genfic, as I recall. Um, and that's actually, that's actually a really, a really interesting. And that, and that first story in the series at least is finished. But there was one, somebody put out a challenge um, that he went as the Master Chief. And they put out this challenge. And I think it was called Ship of the Line. And... Um, there were like a half a dozen stories that all came out around the same time that all you almost indistinguishable in my head about the way they start because they all, I mean, basically in the, the prompt was very pretty specific, which was that this spell basically opened the way for um, all these uh, like vehicles and stuff from the halo verse to move into uh, their reality. And um, it was, um, 
it was really interesting to see how all of these stories basically started the same and then gradually all got further and further and further apart. Now, again, because it was such a big prompt and it was, this is the, the nature of the prompt, which was that it was basically this spell that Ethan Rain cast um, created a collision between the um, Halo verse and the real world, quote unquote, the Buffy verse. Um, that it would basically fuse these two universes together. And that was such a big prompt. I don't know that any of those stories got finished. Or maybe somebody wrote the very beginning of a story and, uh, um, and, and then they needed, you know, it didn't really feel like they had, they'd finished because they had more stories to write. But it was very interesting how they all basically started very similarly and then got further and further apart in their execution, which is what you would expect from a very specific prompt. But the more specific the prompt goes into the, into the plot structure, like if it specifies what the climax has to be, the more similar the story is going to be, the further into the narrative. So um, yeah, if you like the Halloween thing, the Halloween fic, I agree. Twisting the Hellmouth is a great story. Um, a great place to go and find those stories. And they're fascinating. I, I find them, I found that to be one of the most fascinating elements of the Buffy canon was the Halloween spell. So I loved those stories. I mean, they were, they were like my crack for a while because I thought it was absolutely fascinating what that spell did. And that they basically alluded to the fact that, that the effects of that spell hung around. I mean, that was just astonishing to me. So I actually do think that there was one, uh, Natalie, where he was wearing O'Neill's, um, like, a, a, wasn't he wearing O'Neill's uniform? Like, he picked it up at the Goodwill or something? So he basically went as a young Jack O'Neill, and he basically got young Jack O'Neill's memories in his head? That may have been another that's, prompt. That's really interesting. Yeah, so he basically, but, people would, people, people, and you could, you could extrapolate that to another fandom that the spell affected people in another area and basically whatever Halloween costume they were wearing, they got affected by it. But in Xander's case, in Canon, the soldier memories and the skills of the soldier costume that he was wearing hung around for years. That's Canon. So people took that further and they would have him be wearing a specific soldier's costume. And I think in one case, it was at least one story and possibly so people are saying there's many that it was a, 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 a goodwill donation, old uniform of Jack O'Neill's. And so he had, he had Jack O'Neill's memories rattling around in his head after the spell was over. Anyway, it was, it was just a fascinating bit of canon that it was like a one episode throwaway thing, right? It was like their monster of the week thing they did on Buffy and fandom just went nuts over it. Rightfully so, because it was a fascinating concept that you could do anything with anything. What did your character go as? Uh, a Jedi, you know, some you could you it could be something more generic. It could be a stormtrooper. They went as and and like I said, the last challenge I had really seen people get invested in was this ship of the line challenge where he went as the master chief, and it included Cortana coming into existence in that universe. I had this really interesting, like, just had this idea just kind of pop into my head. You know, do you ever watch that show called Friday the Thirteenth or the, the show where they collect? I mean, I've, yeah, where I mean, I've seen they the movie. Evil objects. No, no. This was this was a a show where they collected evil objects and put them in a oh warehouse. No, warehouse 13. no, no. That's the that's the one that came after it. There was a show in the eighties, um, and it was called Friday the. It was called it was called Friday the Thirteenth, I believe, something like that. 
Um, and it wasn't Warehouse 13, and it wasn't. You're um, right. No, there was. There was. You're right. There was. There was a series from May and from October '87 to May of 1990 called Friday the 13th. The series. Okay, they collected items um, that were corrupted or cursed or evil, um, very much like Warehouse 13, which came much later. Um, but wouldn't it be interesting if you had like a character who collected clothing from the past, and if they wore that clothing, they got they could take on the abilities of the person who wore it before them. Like, say they had they had Sherlock Holmes coat. That would be interesting. Anyways, it just kind of popped into my brain. Um, <clears throat> I didn't really like Warehouse 13. I, I thought it had a lot of potential, uh, but, that, but that potential did not get met. Um, but it's I really liked it. Friday the 13th when I, was, um, when I was young. I think it was a little cracky too, but I really enjoyed it. The, the whole cursed antique thing. Um, so Warehouse 13 didn't uh, particularly, wasn't very original. <laughs> in, in that I, li- I liked the librarians <coughs> better, and it felt like they were very similar shows. Yeah, in a lot I, of, do, in a I lot didn't of the librarians better. Um, so anyway, um, but when, when it comes to the two cake thing, uh, sometimes people think what two cakes means is that I've written my story and that somebody else can then take my story and write a version of it. And that's not, that's not at all the same thing. Mm. It's completely, it's, it's, it's one thing for two people to start with a similar prompt or, or even a same outline and go off in the same direction. It's another thing entirely for two people, one person to basically take someone else, what somebody else has made and, and leverage it and say, Oh, well, I'm doing my version of this. It's shady. It's like, oh, it is shady. And it, 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 but I mean, there's ways that that could work. Did you talk to the person who's, did, did that person agree to this? Did they agree to sharing this, this creative space with you? Um, and they, and they, and they, and sometimes they don't, but the other thing you see come up sometimes with this two cake thing that people will talk about is um, somebody will be in a writer space. What, or, or sometimes what we're even calling now more like, uh, I think here is more taken to calling it a maker space because we have a lot of people who are uh, express themselves more visually than, um, writing or um i want to i want to address a question in the chat um someone asked in the chat how do you feel about the fact that we basically do that with published works all the time i write my own version of harry potter for example all the time i'm going to tell you right now that in no single way do i ever think i have ever written a version of harry potter all of my harry potter ideas are my own and i own them and not only do i own them but i brought it I swung it out of the park. My world building in Harry Potter is four times what we got out of the books um, on a bad day and 50 times that on a good day. I write transformative works and in no single way is like there are there are fix on. No, I know you're not trying to be an asshole. I know um, there are fix on fanfiction.net that are basically rewrites of the Harry Potter books. They are 30K versions of the Chamber of Secrets. And if you want to retell the Chamber of Secrets, you do that. But that's not transformative. So that's not fan fiction. That's plagiarism. And the point of fan fiction is to be transformative. And I believe 100% across the board that every single piece of fan fiction I've ever put out is transformative as fuck. (laughs) And that's the difference. Um, Also, I mean... There's, there's another comment here I like to call it. Kira's audience is not children 
or young adults. And the Harry Potter books were started off written for children. Kira's level of world building would probably not be appealing to an eight, nine, ten year old. And certainly no. there's other things that would not be appropriate for an eight, nine, or ten year old. <laughs> true, true. Because that's not, um, that's not the audience that I'm writing for. Um, most people like to either they pretend they don't remember or they don't know or they don't care that Harry Potter wasn't written for adults. Um, no. It was written for it's it, it's YA, and the first book itself was is more children's than it is. It's more children's fiction than it is YA. And so I would say the that first two. It's yeah. the third book that really took a turn towards the changing the tone. Because um, I mean, certainly my siblings were pretty young when they when they started reading the Harry Potter books, and so it. I think it's one of the things about adults writing for adults in terms of transformative works is you have to bring you do have to bring it with the world building and the character and the storylines that are appealing to adults, and that is why that is one of the elements that especially makes something like Harry Potter transformative. Um, it's because you're not writing to the same audience. And so it's not about like showing up JK Rowling or anything like that. JK Rowling's books, books suited the audience that she was writing for. Otherwise they wouldn't have been successful. Um, What I'd also say is that I do have a work, I think in particular. um, Okay. Most of you heard the story. I'm going to tell it again. Years ago, years ago, I wrote a fic called The Awakening. And at the same time, I was exploring Sentinel crossovers. And I was on Wraithbait, and I found a fic on Wraithbait called The Unlikely and the Unwilling. And it is a story about John and Rodney meeting um, as Sentinel and Guide. And I was looking particularly for a fic. <clears throat> Sorry, my, these allergies are killing me, y'all. I've taken two COVID tests. I'm negative, I promise. Not so I can give you guys COVID over the... <laughs> Over the podcast, but uh, I'm, gonna, mean to I'm gonna go get word. I'm gonna go get my mask right now. <laughs> <laughs> Put up, everybody. Sorry, I know we don't we don't need to discuss in the panorama the panorama on the podcast. Um, but I was I was looking particularly specifically for a John Shepard Harry uh, a, a John Shepard Sentinel fic because I'd seen all these fics where Rodney was the Sentinel. And I really wanted John to be the Sentinel. And so I'm over there reading this fic. And at the same time, this this very nice lady in a Yahoo group offered to beta the Awakening for me. And it was some months later before I connected that lady being my beta and that writer on Wraithbait as being the same person. But I'm telling you this story to tell you this. The Unlikely and the Unwilling is a Sentinel and Guide fic where Rodney and John meet in Antarctica, um, bond as Sentinel and Guide, and go to, go to Atlantis. Does that sound familiar? Because it's, that's exactly how Sentinels of Atlantis opens for me. John and Roddy meet in the mountain. They bond as Sentinel and Guide, and they go to Atlantis. Now, Lady Holder's work is transformative, and her work inspired mine, which is also transformative. So it's and we are in the same audience. We're we are we are appealing to the exact same audience: Stargate readers and readers of a Sentinel crossover. I mean, it's like down the road. It's the same audience. But we didn't tell the same story. And when I was inspired her idea, I wasn't inspired to take her plot. <laughs> I didn't go in and just just wholesale take all of her shit from myself. We wrote different stories. And a lot of hers was published. Um, like I think she had one, maybe two parts published when I... Is that right, Lady Holder? When I started doing Sentinels of Atlantis? 
Yeah, something like that. So we're not... <coughs> the point is, is that you can have the same audience. Now, my audience and J.K. Rowling's audience are obviously very different. But you can have the same audience. You can have the same idea. You can have the same basic premise. Um, you can have a pantser and a plotter lunge themselves at the same idea and come out with an entirely different thing. Um, is it a two-cake situation? I think so. But they are vastly different cakes. And sometimes you will have two things that are very similar, but they're still going to be quite, they're still going to be different. I mean, if, if the plot, if the prompt is similar, if the prompt is specific enough and two writers with a similar sensibility about them approached it unknowing and not comparing notes and they sat down, you might both, they, you might wind up with two chocolate cakes, right? One might be a chocolate fudge cake and one might be a German chocolate cake, but they might still both be oh, two God. chocolate cakes. And, you know, and you might be delighted to have those two chocolate cakes, which you would not expect, however, is to wind up with two mm -hmm. chocolate fudge cakes, because that would be a little bit weird. So the reason why this comes <laughs> up is because there was a, there was a, I want cake too, is, um, I, I, I am dying for a piece of cake right now. You just stop talking about cake. <laughs> We, there was a discussion where somebody somebody basically was there was a, this is a while ago but there's a discussion about you know was it okay if somebody was like talking in a maker space like like just right crossroads is not a maker space for the most part we have places for people to talk about some of the stuff they've created specifically visual or craft arts we don't really offer a space for people to talk about their writing other than, hey, I wrote something, here's the thing I've put up. We don't really offer writer spaces on Crossroads, and there's a very specific reason for that. It's because Crossroads, we cannot help but it being very reader-oriented. And it can get very intrusive into a writer's process. We're trying to protect that. Some writers don't care because they just want people to be, you know. So if people are going to insist um, about, you know, talking about, their process and their plots and stuff. We're not, I'm not going to stop them, but it's not a writer space at all. And I, I don't engage with people in any fashion about their writing um, on crossroads because I, I don't, it, cause it's not a, it's not a writing space, but hold on just a second. I'm going to, I forgot how to take care. I forgot that we can pause the recording, but I don't remember how to do it. Anyway. Um, so, just Right is a maker space. It is a place for people to talk. But there was a discussion about the fact that if somebody talks about, particularly in detail, about their idea, their plot, what they're planning to do, and somebody else goes and writes it under this two-cake theory, that is that okay? And I would say, no, it's not. If you didn't talk to that person and say, hey, you're planning to write this thing for a rough trade, for example, um, and you've talked about it and your, 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 your story information, your, your thing is up online already, your project files up online, and you've talked about this thing. Um, you've talked about this thing that you've got going on and somebody else goes and writes it too without talking to you or, or whatever. And they basically take all the stuff you've talked about, your plot notes and all that jazz, and they go off and they write the story too without is that and people want and people assume that and they go that that that's acceptable under this whole two cake two cakes are better than one theory um i would disagree i don't think that is a two cake situation i think that's idea theft at the very least it's idea sniping and yes we yeah i mean we had, we had a whole podcast on that um but you can't control what people do with your ideas 
No, absolutely and not. And it it can be very uh, disconcerting. It can be a betrayal of sorts. Um, I've had people take plots from me, and I can tell you, um, after having had that done, I never trusted that person again. I don't trust them on any level. Here's the thing. When someone is so corrupt that they are comfortable taking your your the product of your mind and claiming it as their own, they're not worthy of your time or your attention going forward. They're just not. And Adam was talking in this little segment, Adam Savage was talking about, um, like I said, retiring and how he wouldn't ever retire, that he would always be a maker. And it made me realize that I don't really see myself retiring either, that I will always be a writer. I was born a writer, I'll die a writer. And I'm very comfortable with that. He talked about, he talked about specifically about critical feedback. And I think Jilly enjoyed this part more than, um, I, I did not enjoy it, but it wasn't what stood out to me, but it was what stood out to her, um, about how there came a point in his career, um, as a maker where he just stopped accepting other people's feedback about his personal projects. And he said it's it was perfectly okay to do so. It was the part that he said about, you know, that you have to, mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly how you put, how he put it, but that you have to choose carefully. He basically said you have to choose carefully. You have, you have to learn who you can share that that part of yourself with and I do think that's true and I think that that's something that writers learn especially in the fandom space they learn usually very painfully because they can hear from you or me or anybody else as much as we a million times this is the best way to get through fandom and they'll disregard it I, I almost don't know that I've ever met anybody who didn't disregard that advice all that maybe one per, one person I can think of one person um and they 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 go and they have the bad experience and it's inevitable whether it's because they posted a whip and got harassed or um because they didn't police their boundaries they didn't you know moderate their their space well um they didn't you know limit because you know, there's all these things you can do on AO3 to to if you're going to post there to curate your experience as a writer, you can make sure only registered users can comment. You can make sure that your comments are moderated. Um, you can do these things that prevent people from being able to abuse you. And people will think, Oh, I don't need to do that. I need, I, sh- I need to just welcome all comments. It's, you know, people, you know, re- people are telling me that I'm censoring them if I don't welcome all comments. So, um, and, and so they, you know, they've got these two different, like, these voices and so they hear like be someone like me or Kara or whoever saying you know protect yourself protect your creative space don't invite people into your process and then they'll go oh but it's okay I can ask my readers I can put a poll up about what pairing I should do no don't do that don't ever put a poll up you know I just want to go don't poll it's one thing to put a poll up about a baby <laughs> name or something but to, to like you're Poor in the middle friend. of a- Right. For fun. But if you're in the middle of a work in progress and you put a poll at the end of the chapter, like, what should I do next? I just always cringe. I mean, it's always done by the time I see it, but I go, I I can't begin to imagine. And then inevitably there's a comment, you know, an author note, like three chapters later, please stop giving me your advice. If I want, if I want help, I'll ask for it. Well, you can't do that. You can't invite people into your process and then tell them to get out later. I mean, you can, but it doesn't work. <laughs> it's like so you, you certainly can, and you can ignore them at when they when they don't pay attention to you, but you've opened that door. Yeah, it, it, the firmer you police your boundaries in the beginning, 
the easier it is because that bound it's like nope boundary 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 and people get used to that boundary being there um but when you open I the door have a wretched reputation in fandom because of my boundaries yeah and it's I terrible that people have pages are so awful because i do have really firm boundaries and people don't like it yeah, they don't like it. They think that they should be able to say what they want when they want. And they they tie it some. I love people who write me about freedom of speech. And it's like, this has nothing to do with that. I don't work for the government. Um, and not only do they want to be able to say what they want when they want, they expect you to take it on board. And when you don't, you're the problem. And if I took everybody's stuff on board, I would get nothing done. Because the thing is, there's no pleasing. There's no pleasing everybody. People, and if people would go, well, but my idea is the good one. Well, but he, she thinks her idea is the good one. And both your ideas suck. <laughs> Just being an asshole. But I'll tell you a little story. Last week, earlier in the week, last week, today's Monday, right? So last week, me and the mods were talking. And um, once or twice a year, I get an email from somebody asking me how... Sometimes it's really insulting. Sometimes it's just really, they're just really curious. How and why I'm so popular and how can they be popular too? People are really flummoxed about my popularity when I'm not on AO3. They don't understand how that happened. Why I show up on Reckless when I'm not on AO3. When I show up in conversations on Reddit or Tumblr, but she's not on AO3. They don't understand where my audience comes from. And so they want to know how I did it. And um, you, there, there are a couple of ways to answer this question. Um, and reckless are part of it. Um, talent is a smaller part than most people would expect it to be. Um, cause it's not about talent. It's not even about consistency, though I wish it was Arte. Um, it, I think longevity plays into it, but I think the biggest factor in my popularity is my word count. Cause when it comes right down to it, readers are greedy. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, I don't know that I agree because I know people. I know people who've got bigger, who've got bigger word counts than you do, and who are not as popular as you are. So I do think it is a I... more complex equation than just word count. But I do think that word count is certainly a factor um, because somebody yeah, who I think it's a big factor. But um... <laughs> thanks, Dagger. But I, I don't do know. Maybe I'm I... just being jaded. <laughs> I think I think I, I think you're a little bit jaded on that because I do think that. I think it's possibly, probably, a combination of talent and word count. Because uh, I've read some authors who are just, like, banging word craft, but they've got, like, twenty or 30,000 words published. And they're never going to have... They might wind up on a bunch of people's reckless within that one fandom of that those stories they've written. And, you, you know, you kind of wonder about them. Like, are they writing under another pen name somewhere? Because it's like their craft is so good. It's like, what... Where are they? Where else are they writing? I mean, are they professional writers who are moonlighting in this one fandom for 30,000 words? I we, mean, what she's trying to say, Imanger, is we miss you. We do miss you, <laughs> baby. Come back. Come back. <laughs> I think Imanger, based on her Tumblr, is in medical school. Good luck, sweetheart. I hope you do amazingly well. Please come back. <laughs> we miss you. <laughs> but every once in a while, I will get, I'll read like a short story that's like five or seven K and it's just, I'm blown away by the quality of the author's writing. And then I'm like, where did this come from? And sometimes you just are really hit by how well somebody writes. If you take that and you couple with it with a lot, but also, but again, it also can't just be, it's not just all that, right? You have to have, um, pairings people are interested in, um, 
you have to have uh, tropes people are interested in. So it's a combination of, you know, trope that, I mean, tropes that people are interested in reading. Um, yeah, the right tropes, the right pairings, the right fandoms, the right time period in a fandom. Right. I mean, I think, like, people refer to you, like, as a latter-day Stargate Atlanta Stargate writer. But the thing that's interesting about that time period is that... Um, you came in when people were still really, people still really wanted to read it, I think, but that yeah. a lot of authors were waning in their content. So it was actually a really good time to be a um, Stargate writer because people, people's interest in reading Stargate has not diminished, but no. pe- people's interest in writing. I get a writing, lot of on Stargate every day. Right. But people's interest in writing Stargate has, has dwindled. So, um, one thing yeah. I always tell people when they when they email me and ask me this, and it happens two or three times a year, is that you don't want to be as popular as you think. Well, but what are people saying when they say they want to be popular? What they're saying is they want comments and hits. Com, com they want comments, comments, kudos, whatever. I mean, uh, and rec, they want to be on rec lists and commented on, and um, but they don't want the hate mail, and they and they don't want the death threats, um, <laughs> Cork. Um, that they don't want any of that, but that comes with it. They don't want the expectations. They don't want the demands. They don't want the snotty emails. They don't want the snotty comments. Well, it's been a decade since you worked on this. It's finished, motherfucker. <laughs> I finished it a decade ago. That's why I haven't worked on it. <laughs> it's done. There's an end. The end on it. It's been done. <laughs> there was a fucking um, Garden Gnome Rebellion, so I don't want to hear about it anymore. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I yeah, know. I actually had to take, I had to re some formatting because originally I had plotted three stories for um, that old Black Magic was the first in a series of three. But I never wrote the other two. People kept complaining about it. So I changed it and took out all the trilogy stuff. They still ask. Because somewhere well, out there there's a record where it's, where it's called that. Um, it's called the War Mages trilogy somewhere. I mean, I'll be honest. I, yeah. in, my head, in my head, I forget that it's called that old black magic because i always yeah. link to it through the war mages trilogy so in my head i mean i know if you tell me i took down the trilogy page and i put just that old black magic up as anyway in my in my list and i had the week it happened i had 10 people email me going oh my god where is it oh my god i'm gonna die it's my favorite i need to save it i said it's still there baby it's okay but in <laughs> my, but, see, but it's like with the way my memory is, it's like that's etched. Yeah. So I mean, I know that 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 old black magic. It, it is what it is. And but if you told me, but in my head, I would never say it out loud outside of right here. But if you said, you know, if somebody said to me that old black magic, my brain would make this filing cabinet association. Oh, book one in the War Mages trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> the because... only book in the War Mages trilogy. <laughs> but I, I, I was told. I was told I, and during the pre-show, I told um, the audience that's that's with us right now that I'd actually found the zero draft for the second book in that trilogy today when I was cleaning off my desk. So, in an old notebook, I, I had a big stack of notebooks. There, was, there, honestly, there were forty notebooks in that stack. It's a very neat stack, but it was a stack nonetheless. Because <laughs> I like to write on paper. It's like it's a thing. It, it it's honestly very. It helps me very creatively to to put ink. To, to put ink to paper, it, it really does. For plotting, um, I do like that, and but I've moved to um, erasable notebooks, so I just you know, I'm going to have all that stuff digitally now because I just can't maintain. It's not sustainable for me to just have 
boxes and boxes and boxes. Yeah, yeah, boxes. it's a problem for me too. It's a real problem. So, then you don't want to part with them because you don't want because it's nostalgic, <laughs> right? That's, that's mine, you know. <coughs> but yeah. So now I have, you know, I got my very, you know, I, I backed my Axis notebooks and I, uh, I got my packs of, you know, multicolored erasable pens. Not that I ever use anything but the black one. So I don't know right? why I have all these colored pens. Um, you know, every once in a while I look at them and I go, what in the world am I going to use a silver pen for? Who uses silver on white paper? Um, but I actually I find it. it. I have a notebook that's actually uh, full of black paper. It, I, someone gave it to me. It was an, it was a novelty gift because I collect notebooks, right? And uh, she said, "I found this in a store, and I thought of you." And she handed me a silver ink pen and a notebook full of black paper. And I was like, "I'm fucking charmed. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> mm. I've never written in it. <laughs> I'm saving it for a rainy day." <laughs> yeah, I really have started to enjoy the whole erasable experience, you know. So I, you know make my plot notes about a story and then photograph them. I have a destination pre-set up to go straight to a writing directory in my Google, Google drive. And that way, you know, the, of course, then if I ever want to find anything, I have to go dig through all those images, but that's not any different than having to dig through a bunch of notebooks. So, right. So, but yeah, on the I other do, hand, notebooks, so. the stuff I don't need, I just erase. So, um, but yeah, I do my plotting on paper. Um, I don't do a lot of longhand writing. I do it occasionally. Um, I got stuck at the mechanic the other day, and I asked them for you know a couple sheets of paper and a pencil, and, and I did some longhand writing. You do what you got to do to get through it. But I usually what happens when I'm going to do longhand writing is I just wind up writing dialogue, and I fill in all the all that all the beats later because you know I just it's just too tedious to to write, you know, Buck said, Buck glanced across the room. I just, no, just write the dialogue. Because the dialogue's the part that, for me, in, in those kinds of scenes, that is the creative energy. Mm. So, um, but, you know, there's something to, there's something interesting about people working from, I actually really like it when, because basically, when you have a prompt that a lot of people pick up, you basically develop a trope from it. That's how tropes kind of develop in a fandom. Mm -hmm. Um you know, for the whole, yeah, for good. Yeah, definitely for good and bad. And a lot of times, a lot of times for good, because that becomes that thing you look for, right? It's like, can anybody point me to any more stories where this happens? And it's it, sometimes it can be hard to track back who wrote the first version of this. I don't know. I mean, is it even possible to find that? Sometimes it isn't right to figure out who wrote that very first one. Because it's just such an inspiring idea that maybe a bunch of people did it. It could have been that it originated kind of organically through a conversation on a, in a fandom space that you'll never have any insight into. And it doesn't really, even that part doesn't really matter. But when a lot of people kind of latch onto an idea and they go off and they write it, that's kind of the birth of a trope. And it's actually can be very exciting to be at the birth of a trope. That's kind of why I think I'm kind of what they would, you know, if Kira's a Latter-day Stargate Atlantis writer, I'm a Latter-day NCIS writer. Certainly, I think of, like, when I think of the big-name NCIS writers, they all were hell and gone from writing an NCIS before I ever mm -hmm. even landed on the fandom, like KSL. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I would have said Nancy was one. Um, I don't know if she still writes in NCIS anymore. Um, but writers like that, I'm blanking on some of the names of the writers, but they were all the people who, who were very prolific in, um, and, and of very, very good writers were gone from NCIS before I ever started writing in it. Um, 
and it's not so much i think there's a huge appetite for ncis stories in my opinion anymore although there seems to be some interest that is kind of more interest developing in some of the newer characters that i'm not very familiar with but i do think like tony denozo has kind of developed into his own fandom um i agree and i do think that there's kind of an almost an endless appetite for stories about him whether it's in the ncis setting but i actually think people even prefer it when he's out of the ncis setting put him here there wherever and i i remember there was something somebody said to me it was at least six years ago if not further back about um something about my indiscriminate pairings with Tony or something like that. Indis- <laughs> I, I, re- I remember the indiscriminate pairing. I remember the indiscriminate pairing too. That's about all I remember, but it stood out. I remember that. <clears throat> yeah. The indiscriminate pairing. And um, it was something about, it, it, they were upset about the whole Gibbs that I wasn't writing Gibbs, Gibbs Denozo. Um, and it was something about being a casualty of the, my indiscriminate pairing or something like that. And I just, like I a felt... casualty of your indiscriminate pairing. That is so fucking entitled. How dare you? Right. I, I don't remember what pairing I was writing back then, but considering five or six years ago, it could have been Mothership. It could have been Tony, Tony. Um, I don't know. Um, but consider, I think some of the best stories I've written with Tony have been not with Kibbs. Um sort of I would actually think that my love letter to that ship was uh these small hours. And um, I was gonna say that. <laughs> yeah. Um I I, I these put small that hours is beautiful. Thank you. And I put that story at a point in time when I found the pairing unoffensive and that I felt like a lot of people who had seen potential in the pairing, but had abandoned it because of the way Gibbs character developed would be able to, to read the pairing. Um, but, you know, beyond a very wildly AU situation like emergence, I just, it's very difficult pairing for me to wrap my head around anymore. And sometimes I wrote the pairing, the few times I've written the pairing, um, it was either because it was for a challenge where it was, like those, I had some, like my, if my choices are Gibbs Denoza or Tony, Tony McGee, um, I'm going to find a way to make Gibbs Denoza work. <laughs> Honestly, I, it's not that I find McGee a more offensive character. I just don't see the chemistry. I'll be honest. I, I can't, I can't get the chemistry there in my head between McGee and Denoza. It's just like, what, mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. Um, my brain kind of <laughs> seizes on it. Um, but so it's either like a challenge kind of situation or, um, or it was really an AU sort of thing, but, or sometimes you write things in, in a way because you feel like you're obligated. If that makes sense. It's like, this is the mm-hmm. fandom norm. This is the big ship. Da, 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 da. But once you kind of like rattle your own brain free of the expectations of your, of the fandom you're in, you can do whatever the hell you want. Um, so that's Unless why you I think. Be yourself and you're screwed. All right. That's why I think Tony has become, he's a little bit of a little black dress of himself. He can kind of go anywhere Um, because he comes from a procedural fandom. As long as the fandom isn't, I would say, wildly fantasy or something like that, you can kind of slot him anywhere. And um, he does make for a good fandom of his own. And I am, I'm on board with that fandom, but you know, I've had quite a few ideas for bringing Tony into, I plotted at least a half a dozen stories, putting Tony into, um, the nine one one verse. I only um, have the one, the one 
where Buck needs a thing, and then there were there were a couple candidates for that, and one of them was Tony. So mm. remember that, remember um, that podcast? Yeah. <coughs> the one I've been um, well, we talked about. I think we talked about one on the podcast where. Yeah, we talk, I know we talked about this one on the podcast because somebody brought it up where uh, Buck is Randolph Rampart's son. Mm, yeah. And that one and that one I was going to have um, Tony be Randolph's hu- husband in that one. Um, and then there's another one. I think I've also talked about this on the podcast where it was sort of an, it was sort of a what if idea of it was because, you know, uh, this is an early season five. This is well past more than six months old um, where Chris gets um, not Chris, but in season five, Harry gets kidnapped. But I had a, mm-hmm. I'm like, I had a one. This has nothing to do with season five, but I had a, what if moment, what if Christopher was ever kidnapped in Canon? And I had this idea that Buck knew uh, Tony from an investigation when Buck was um, doing his trial for the nails, Davy seals. It didn't work out. And that actually in this, that, Buck was actually going through buds when this investigation happened. And because of the nature of the investigation, he was able to get out of his commitment to the Navy, but that's where he met Tony and they had kept in touch. And um, when Christopher was kidnapped, that Buck got on the phone and called Tony, who's living with a Navy seal of his own in Hawaii and said, yo, um, um, I have a problem. <laughs> I, I, my kid's been kidnapped. And Tony's like, I'm on my way. And, you know, you've got Tony and Tony and uh, Steve show up to figure that crap out. We we're not calling it Stash Ship. Go to the corner, Ed. <laughs> never. We're never calling it Stash Ship. It's Marine Ship. <laughs> we already decided. We have a mother ship, a Marine ship, and a sniper ship. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, I don't even know why she bothers to come out of the corner. Just, just stay. Just, just stay in there. Just stay. Just go to the corner, Ed. We do have a gunship. I can't remember whose gunship, though. I think there was also a knife ship. We got deep one night. <laughs> there was we a did. Thing. We had it. We, it, we had a whole. It, it, I, I would have said we were drunk, but none of us were. None of us were drinking. Um, so uh, somebody DM Chris. I don't know what she wants, but somebody DM her. <laughs> Slide into Chris's DM. Somebody. <laughs> um, that sounds deeply personal. We're um, protected. <laughs> right. Get your um, cyber condom on <laughs> and your mask. <laughs> and I thought Ian was sniper ship. Yeah, I would have said Ian would be sniper ship. Sniper ship makes more sense to me than gunship. And if if if, if we're gonna have a starship, I think it really has to be Ronan, <laughs> right? He he's an alien, <laughs> a hot one, a hot alien, very hot. We may have to revise these, but definitely marine ship was was Rampart. Um, I'm really on board with the Tony Rampart pairing. I I've written those two shorts for it, and it's just charming. Yeah, I've written only one. No, I've written. No, I have. I have, I have. I have the one that's up, but I have another one that was that I had that one a Sentinel Guide story that I that nobody that I didn't finish that nobody else has seen but me, um, except for the parts that were published on rough trade um but yeah i had some ideas for bringing tony i had actually had more ideas for bringing tony into the lone star lone star universe um but um yeah that 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 series got a little complicated for me but i you know he's he's an interesting character to play with and you can move him around really easily with his skills um i'm trying to think about if i could turn tony into texas ranger and i think i probably could (laughs) 
I don't see why you couldn't. <laughs> you can just see him. Do I have to wear a hat? <laughs> I'm not really a pug. I look good and everything, but do I have to wear a hat? <laughs> you're going to want a hat, like, but it's sexy. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, you're going to want a hat. There's a lot of sun here, so. <laughs> and no fucking trees. There's, there's, there's some trees. <laughs> I'm just one kidding. or two. Please don't talk to me, Texas. I'm sure you have at least two, three trees. <laughs> short ones. <laughs> you have some short trees. Um, yeah, I guess it depends on the part of Texas. I've been in parts of Texas. It's like, can we have a tree, please? It's like the whole town's like under one, one tree. tree. <laughs> I was okay. This is just a little side story. I was visiting some friends in this little teeny town in West Texas, and. uh we were, we were, I don't, I don't remember why we were out at like 10 o'clock at night. And I'm pretty sure it was something like a Piggly Wiggly, which, you know. It's amazing. If you ever see a Piggly Wiggly, you just have to go into one for, for the experience. Just it's so you just can say. Store, just, so, just so you can say you've been in a Piggly Wiggly. Been in a Piggly Wiggly. Which apparently the guy named, the, the guy who founded the, the chain, he named it that just because it amused him. I like that it has no other function than that. But anyway. Um, and we're leaving the grocery store of which there was nobody in the grocery store and we turn a different and, and way off in the distance as we're sitting there in this parking lot to, to leave way, way off in the distance, there's a set of headlights, like way off in the distance. And that's the direction we came from. And my friend, she turns the other way. And I said, where are you going? She said, I want to avoid the traffic. I said, this is a fucking small town. <laughs> <laughs> I want to avoid the traffic. It's one car. <laughs> it's one car that is so far off. I couldn't have told you if it was a car or a semi. And she wants to avoid the traffic. The traffic. I was like, I was like, welcome to West Texas. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. <sighs> but uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that the older I get um, and the more that I write, um, the more ownership I feel over my words and my creative product. Um, I know that maybe that's weird uh, that I didn't always have that, but there was a time when I felt like even works that I, that I didn't write to be sold didn't, there was this years ago, there was this heifer. Which <laughs> Whatever heifer? You hear a story yeah. about, there was this heifer. Okay. There was this heifer on Facebook who was bitching because authors expected to get paid, professional authors expect to get paid for their works. How dare they want to get paid for something they made up in their head. And it stuck with me. Not because I thought she had a point, because I thought she was the most ridiculous cow I've ever fucking seen in my whole fucking life. But um, I just channeled a guy I knew in um, college from New Jersey just in. Because <laughs> his only adjective was the F word. Um, literally. Literally, his only adjective was the F word. We had to edit his papers because he put the fuck, fuck everywhere. His... Anyway, um, it it did. There, there's something, like, even when you get your words out on paper or in a digital format and you've created something out of, out of air, you know, so to speak. Um, finding that tangible ownership to this idea that you had in your brain and you gave birth to the story is it, it, it's, it's difficult and it was for me for a very long time I think it's something you grow into um, because there are people around you your whole life devaluing what you do uh, 
they're asking you questions about how much money you make. Um, why are you doing this? Aren't you bored? You know, what are you going to do with this? When are you going to make money at this? And I told before, I told you before, that when somebody asks you something that you do for fun, whether it be reading or writing or art, whatever it is, if it's, you know, people will ask you, is it making you money? Because you're expected to have some kind of side hustle, apparently, right? That you have to validate your creativity to society. When someone tries to make you do that, just tell them it makes you happy. And then watch them sit there and try to tell you you're not allowed to be happy. Some of them will. Oh, yeah, they absolutely <laughs> will. Um, I work from home. I have for a while because of um, physical disability. Uh, I, I can't. I can't honestly say it's not also a mental disability because my clinical depression got really bad. Um, and I am grateful to be in a position um, where I don't have to make money outside the house. Um, but there are people in my life who assume that since I don't work, that's the, that's the, well, since you don't work, you can go do... Motherfucker, I do work. But even if I didn't, my time is my own. And you don't get to tell me what I can do with it and what I can't. I had an uncle recently asked me when I was going to publish again. And I said, I, I probably won't professionally. Um, and he was like, it must be nice not to have to work for a living. I said, yeah, it really is. It's really nice. I like it a lot. When's your next retirement check come in? He looked at me like, he looked at me like I was the asshole. Now, I know he worked for his retirement. He worked his ass off for it. But how dare he judge me? He's been retired for 10 years. <laughs> Just, fuck you. <laughs> for real. <coughs> But really, he doesn't pay any of my bills, so why is it any of his damn business? It's not. Um, but people do expect you to justify how you spend your time, right? They want some justification for what you're doing. what, How you're spending your time, what you're doing with it. How much money are you earning? What are you doing? Um, and last time I told somebody, I'm, well, I do it because it makes me happy. And they were all like, she was, she was a cousin. She was like, you know that makes you sound like an asshole, right? I was like, how does that make me sound like an asshole? Isn't it one of my honest-to-God fucking constitutional rights? <laughs> it's just like, I don't... Well, actually, that's not in the Constitution. That's in um, Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, life, life, liberty, liberty pursuit happiness, happiness. pursuit of happiness, yeah. yeah but what's that, what's, that, what's that line? You don't have the right to be happy. You just have the right to pursue it. <laughs> That's from a straight straight <laughs> talk. That's Dolly Parton. Okay. That's the, the, the Declaration of Independence. They can guarantee you the right to be happiness. It just get, gives you the right to pursue it. Do it. I am fucking pursuing it as it is my right by the Declaration of Independence. Um, but uh, it's people don't want you to be happy. I think that there's there's that element, but there's also people feel like that if if something in your life is going to have value and make you happy, it has to actually literally have value. Literal value. But the other side of it is, is that I have, this, this cousin in particular likes to base her comfort on somebody else's discomfort. And I don't think she's unique. No. You know what well, I, mean? I mean? Well, that's, I think that there's a lot of people who like, just like to cut other people down. You know, there's, they can't let and other people like, have them. Well, my, things are pretty bad, but at least I've still got... At least I'm not this. I'm not that. You know, it's like they're they're basing their their standard of happiness on somebody else's misery. But she said I was a snot for saying that I, that I was writing to make myself happy. And I was like, I don't I don't have the right to be happy. 
Is that what you're saying? She says, well, that isn't the point. Everybody else has to work for a living. I said, it's not my fault you didn't marry well. <laughs> Which, that was an asshole thing to say. But she started it. My mama laughed her ass off. My mama almost fell off her fucking chair. Did you see what Starlight said? That's fucking hysterical, Starlight. Hey, I'm not English. I have the right to pursue my happiness. We fought a whole war for that. <laughs> you do. Good for you. I think that, honestly, everybody has the right to happiness. Unless, let me give a caveat here. Unless doing other people bodily harm makes you happy. <laughs> there should be a limit. Keeping people in your basement makes you happy. No, baby, you can't do that. <laughs> well, you can't infringe on the rights of others. But there's also, there's different kinds. Of, there's, there's people who have to always cut everything down, right? It's either cut it down or cut you down worse. So it's like either do that thing that your cousin did. Or if you're happy, they have to one-up your situation. Like, oh, something great happened to me. And they have to come in and they have to tell you the thing they did that was greater. Or something you're struggling because something bad happened. And they have to come in and try to give you perspective about how much worse your situation can be if you were them. Um, right. So, you know... I don't mean, I'm not putting this out there to be downers, because it's just, this is just a thing, right? So in the midst of all this other chaos been going on lately, I found out that the cancer I have has progressed, and there is a medication that will treat it. It's $15,000 a month, and my insurance is going to cover about, about two-thirds of it, which basically means it's not covered, because who the fuck can pay $5,000 a month for medication, right? Two-thirds? Yeah, they'll pay for two-thirds. So I can pay $5,000 a month if I want to take this medication that could extend well, my life by... Do that? Right, exactly. I might as well just... What's the point of even telling me any of this? Anyway. Um, so the whole thing, that, that whole thing is kind of... That's, that's kind of all irrelevant. But I mentioned this to a friend of mine. And her response to this was, well, at least there's a medication for your problem. I'm well, like, oh, go get fucked. Fuck her. I hope she's not your friend anymore because fuck her. <laughs> I mean, at least she what didn't offer me some essential fuck? oils. I would get on a plane. <laughs> Don't let me get on a plane. <laughs> We're still in the pandemic. I was like, you know, it's just, it's just, but there, there, there are people like, this is people. This is like some people's nature. And these people are toxic and you have to get them. At least in whatever this fashion is that you interact with them, you have to keep them away from you or be prepared to cut them down right back. Because if you can't be happy and you can't have a success without them having to have had a bigger success and make you feel like that you didn't do anything. Or you can't have a bad thing happen in your life without them trying to reframe it for you because their life is worse you know you just nobody needs that kind of crap there's always there are those people who just have to be fucking toxic they just have to be toxic and you know i mean it's just like life is hard enough without people trying to give you that kind of perspective all the time you know and there's always and some people you can you can some people don't mean to give you perspective that you don't want and those people, you can kind of nudge them and say, hey, this isn't helping me right now, and they'll back off. But the people who are insistent upon, you know, one-upping you, and honestly, one-upping you about negative stuff is almost worse than one-upping you about positive stuff. Um, because that's a little bit harder to fight back against, right? If somebody's, if you if you come in and you say, hey, I just, you know got engaged and they go oh well let me tell you about how i got engaged and you're like you know, this isn't about you so shut up um 
Well, but you you come in and you come in with this thing of that you happen that struggle with health, and they go, oh, well, let me tell you about my ALS, and you're just like, oh my god, <laughs> could we just? I mean, what are you supposed to say to that kind of thing, right? People who can never well, let you. What you say is, I don't actually want to engage in misery Olympics with you right now. Right. That's actually good. That's, I need to write that down. I don't want to engage in the misery a little bit with you. Um, it's like, you know, you just want to go, I'm having a fucking bad day. Can you just let me have it? I actually, I actually literally am writing that down. I don't want to engage in the misery Olympics with you. It's like, so, you know, don't invite people into your process that you don't trust. If Honestly, don't invite people into your life on any intimate level that you don't trust. Whether it's about your writing, or about your art, about your cooking, about how you clean your house, whatever. They don't, their opinion does not matter. And also, when you have an opinion to share, this is something he also said, as I said in his video, that when he's encountered other creators and he's had feedback he wanted to give them, but wasn't sure if it was welcome, he would ask them. Um... Are you open to feedback? Can I tell you some things? And if he got told no, he gracefully agreed to keep his damn mouth shut because he knew it wasn't personal. But in fandom, a lot of people assume when if you don't want to take their opinion on board that it's personal against them. That it's some kind of weird personal vendetta. There was somebody in the Stargate fandom that was convinced that I hated them. I didn't even know who they fucking were until it got pointed out to me that they were on another journal service telling everybody that I hated them and that I was also stalking them. No, baby. I don't even know who you are. Honestly, I don't even know who you are. Um, I had the maximum number of people you could have as friends on LiveJournal. I think it was like 5,000. Because what I would do is if someone friended me, I'd friend them back. And that is the only way I made friends on LiveJournal. Someone had to friend me first. It's the same thing on Facebook. I don't friend anybody on Facebook first. And now it's set up where you have to have mutual friends with me in order to friend me. You just can't friend me if you don't have friend if, if, if we don't have friends in common. Um, I don't do that. I've I've never sought that out in fandom, and this person was on my friends list, and was they were acting like that or my read list on Live Journal, which is made out of your friends list. I had no idea who they were. Lady Holder had to tell me. I had no idea. So I went through my giant ass friend list and took them off my list, so they wouldn't no, be stalked anymore. No, from my five thousand. I mean, honestly, do you have? Do you think for a minute that I had five thousand friends on my on my list on Live Journal, and I was reading my read page? No. Can you imagine? No, baby, I wasn't reading that page. I never read that page. I don't read my read page now. I mean, <laughs> no. I, I think you more. I think you more of Dreamwith. I mean, people friend me on Dreamwith for what reason? I don't know. I don't actually post on Dreamwith, but I don't read my read page as is. Um, I go They're to Dreamwith for one EAD. You're right, I, but I go to Dreamwith for one reason and one reason only, and that's to read Minor Kira's EAD. Um, or that's not true. I go there and sometimes read Star Kindler's EAD. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, EAD is the only reason I go to Dreamwith. I also do thick announcements on Dreamwith for some reason. I forget why. I, I said I would do it, so I do it. Um, which is how I ended up getting a Facebook because my readers asked me to. It's why I have a Twitter because my readers asked me to, so they could get Twitter notifications. I wouldn't necessarily have a twit for much longer if the twit actually managed to go through with his silliness. Um, no, no, that that will be the first thing I cancel. Boom, done. I'll, cancel. That's a that's a death knell right there. Um, but that that happiness and creating that makerspace and it, and I don't just mean like a physical makerspace. I mean that makerspace in your head 
where you get to explore your own ideas and your own your own versions of these characters that that's a special space that's just for you and having been writing for basically 35 years a little more if you want to count the paper stuff before I got a typewriter because my mom's always been very supportive most of the time of my creativity she's read all the books that I published um she still fronts my books at the bookstore if she sees them in the used bookstore she'll front a book that's hysterical. <laughs> Turn the cover out so everybody sees it. Point out to my point my books out to people in the used bookstore. This is my daughter's. Have you read it? I you can read it. <laughs> I have. I have a. It's funny. I have a mixed. I have a mixed. I have a not mixed. A, a con, sort of a con, conflicted relationship with that whole mom support thing because it took my mom a long time to get on board with being supportive of my fan fiction writing, mm -hmm. and. um I think she felt like that me getting professionally published was proof that I could be doing more with my writing more. Um, and uh, it took, I think it took her a long time to see. And she did send me a letter one day about how she recognized that she was looking at my writing the wrong way. And that, be, that she was looking at an end product being money coming in from a book sale as being, the worth of the of the of the activity itself and that that she realized that that was the wrong way to look at it and she apologized for you know she, she apologized but so the, the letter was very was very good about kind of showing her own realization about she had not been looking at my writing in the right in, in the proper way and not certainly not looking at it in the way that I look at it which is something the thing that kind of nourishes me but at the same time she still kind of will kind of default to you could be doing and then she'll kind of catch herself why aren't you working on? And then she'll catch herself well, and kind yeah, of that, backtrack. And it's like it. this, but she's working yeah, on it. So that's right. She she is working on it. But I have to tell you, one of probably the, one of the most bizarre moments of my life was after the second my second the second book was published. My my pops sends me an email about how much he loved the books, and <laughs> he's really looking forward to reading whatever comes next. And in this universe that I've created. And I just went, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and I, yes, yeah, yes, Natalie. Natalie. Yeah, the gay books. <laughs> um, no, no, my stepdad, my mom's uh, second husband. And, um, I mean, but he's at a grandpa age, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's definitely, definitely. And, um, and I was like, I immediately texted my mother and I go, did you give him my books to read? And she said, y he was curious about what you've been up to. And I said, oh my God, mom. And she said, Wait, what? He did, really did, did she give him my books to read? Oh, he's okay. read. He's read your, some of your fan fiction. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> he, really, he, really, he really enjoyed Gratua, by the way. Oh, well, you know, I sent her mom ebooks of Gratua, so. Yeah. He read it. He he enjoyed it very much. He he's the she's the only person who had a hard time following. I think that something about that storyline, um, not the storyline, but the universe, the Star Wars universe. She felt like she didn't understand enough about the universe to read the story. Mm. Um, so she got diverted for months doing research about Star Wars, which was bizarre. The thing is, my sister and pops both read it and had no problem with it. 
understanding it without doing a single bit of research and they both have watched less star wars than her but she just was like she just rattled on i she's researching wookies and she's research i mean i'm like mom she's researching mandalorians i mean she's i'm just mom would you just read the fucking books (laughs) (laughs) that's actually charming though i'm I'm sorry she rattled she did, but she yeah. if she had a good time with it in her own way. And the next thing I know is I get a baby Yoda calendar going, I really enjoyed the I really enjoyed the books, these tell Kira. And I was like <laughs> My stress levels? I'm gonna need more than a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> but oh no, I, I, I have I do not I I do not let my mother loose on I I send her I send her an ebook of what she gets to read. I do not let her loose on fandom. And she's not particularly interested in reading fan fiction, so it has to be a very, like, you know. But I was talking about um, a, better, a Better Man, specifically. I had been reading it when she was here. And I don't remember what I was saying, um, but all of a sudden she goes, do you think Kira would mind if I read it? And I just kind of, it was like my head like popped up like a little groundhog. And I was like, what? You want to read fan fiction? She says, well, I'm really curious now. And I was like, based on what? She says, well, you've been really selling it. I go, that wasn't my intention. <laughs> I said, well, I'll ask her when it's done if, if, I don't know why you could, I mean, she's not going to forbid you. And that, it was don't just, read it, weird, mom. It was just this weird space. It was just this really weird, weird, weird space. The other stories, uh, I, I only, the only fan of, she's read The Awakening. And because I wanted to give her something that was, would read like original fiction to her. Um, now she's read your book book. It's her one of her favorite romance novels. She's read Fall for You. Um and um But she's a a gay reader. She not she reads gay fiction. <laughs> so that's Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, not that's definitely her she just, I don't think I want her to read what might have been because honestly a lot of people think that what what might have been is one of my softer works. No. But John John's a psychopath. <laughs> I don't want her to read that. <laughs> she can't read my crazy John fic. <laughs> Let her read Lanty Legacy. <laughs> oh, so the, one of the few stories she's read of mine was The Hospitality of Hobbits, right? So mm-hmm. I e- ebook it for her and I send it to her, send to Kindle email address. So I send it to her. And um, she finishes it. She goes, That was really sweet. When did you decide to write YA? And I was right, YA? <laughs> this whole well, moment. Hobbit is YA. But there was this whole moment of no, she was talking about my writing style, not the not the fandom oh. itself. She's like when, and I was like, it's like I was just like my whole brain offline. I was like, why a? What are you talking about? So, well, there's no gay stuff in Gratua, so your dad could read that if he was into Star Wars. I mean, but he did. Here's oh. the problem. Not 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 your dad. Her dad. The, my dad. Already read it. Chat room. But. What I would say is, you guys, do not pass your parents my porn unless you're prepared for them to Google me. Because if they Google my pen name, my site is the first fucking hit. And do you really want to explain the magical butt sex tour to your mom? No. Just keep it in mind. (laughs) I'm just saying. (coughs) Your parents can Google. Don't think they won't. Assume they will. You could you can make an ebook and take my, take my name off of it. <laughs> that that why they couldn't Google me. Um, but it's uh, <coughs> um, 
I have had people on Facebook try to friend me um, that were obviously family members of my readers that I have declined on because I didn't want to cross the streets. That's happened to me a couple times, too, on Facebook, where I was just kind of like, hmm. I'm pretty sure that's so-and-so's husband. Hmm. And what? I actually will paint them like, your husband just friended me. No. <laughs> Decline that now. Him, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, I had someone's dad try to friend me like a couple of years ago. And I contacted her. I said, is that your dad or your grandpa? And she said, oh, it's my dad. I said, he just tried to friend me twice. I told him, I said no the first time. And then he asked again. I said, I don't want to hurt his feelings, but could you tell him that he shouldn't friend me because I'm a porn writer? <laughs> She said, that's probably why he's trying to friend you. I was like, oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> I'm it, not. Tell him I'm married. <laughs> that is a whole issue, isn't it? But mm. um, writing, it's interesting. One of the things about writing, um, I count the, the start of writing as when I started, for me, actually, it's when I first started setting down to write the first real book. Um, that fucking amnesia story. I mean... <laughs> Mine wasn't much better. It was a stranded in the mountains Harlequin romance. She flies yeah. into a small Alaskan town to work as a personal assistant for a reclusive, uh, very wealthy man living in a in a mountain lodge in Alaska, um, and they get snowed in. It's like it's like it's like Harlequin. Totally. <laughs> my my second, which I did, I did this one. I didn't finish. But my second one was, uh, she's an innkeeper at like a remote mountain retreat, and his car breaks down. I mean, could you get any more cliche? Um. Well, maybe maybe it was a bed and breakfast. I think the bed and breakfast. She makes had it more a cliche. facial scar she thought was really atrocious, but it really isn't, and he falls in love with her and makes her feel beautiful. <laughs> oh my god. Well, considering it was the 80s, if she'd worn a waist chain, that would have made it as cliche as it could have possibly been. You know. I had I, I had a waist chain in the 90s. I don't know what you're talking about. I but I did I did I did too, but that's not the point. I mean, it's like, you know, she looks all conservative and then he gets her dressed and she's wearing a waist chain and it's so shocking. It's really it was never that shocking, you know. <laughs> yeah, when but, I wore my I turned it off. I I wore crop tops so everybody could see it. I'm like, look, there's look, only look one this. bed, yeah. Um, but the, oh yeah, there's only one bed. Yeah, I've only got one. I've only got one room for it. It's my room. Um, um, no, but <laughs> I hope you don't mind sharing. There's um, that's when I kind of counted the counted the, the the start of of the writing journey is when I when I go okay, I I don't want to just tell these little stories or these little little things I've written down or things I've told my siblings or the stuff I entertain myself in my head with. I want to actually write. Cause, you know, I started reading romances. And I was like, I want to write some of this down. I want to write some of these ideas down. And I started that first ridiculous book, <laughs> which I, I was an amnesia. I could take any of the other cliche approach to the tropes that, you know, 12 year old me was drawn to, but why amnesia? You know, adult me is just horrified that that's what I was, you know, I actually looking back at what my life was like back then, I get why I would have been drawn to amnesia as a trope, but I still am just horrified because I cannot stand amnesia as a trope now, unless it's just very briefly in the story. It can't be the whole main thrust of the story. It's got to be in there very briefly. In my book, my mountain man had three brothers. 
Because of course he did. <laughs> of course he did. You were you were setting up for a series, weren't you? <laughs> yes, I was. At twelve years old, I was already like, okay, he's gonna have three other brothers, and these are their names, and they're really good looking, and one's a lawyer, and one's a doctor. <laughs> I was all in, all in on this. I yeah. <clears throat> and yeah. my finished work was two hundred and two hundred pages, I believe, two hundred something pages. Um, typed, double spaced, Times New Roman, <laughs> twelve point. Yeah, Times that's, New that's, Roman. That's the only. That's the only thing I had on my typewriter. Well, I didn't have a typewriter. So all my stuff was on little floppy, little, little floppy disks. You know, floppy disks, fucking floppy disks. Um. <laughs> oh, as <laughs> and an iPad. <laughs> that's perfect. As I love it. Can I read it? <laughs> Fabio with an iPad. <laughs> Which speaking of have have you seen the movie? Was it called The Lost City? Um, with with Channing Tatum and uh, my dad was a weatherman. I've not seen it, but I've seen the preview. Sandra Bullock. Oh yeah, Sandra Bullock. Oh my God, I I I I'm starting to worry that incontinence is going to be an actual issue. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> I mean, the preview is outrageous. Why are you so good looking, Brad? Flicks his hair. My dad was a weatherman. <laughs> what? Um, what? Why is that? Why does that make sense to me? <laughs> it was. It was just. It was. It, it was so funny. And, and there definitely is some poking fun at like a lot of the romance tropes from the eighties and stuff. But it. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was good humored fun as opposed to malicious fun because sometimes poking yeah. fun at fun at writing can be malicious as opposed to this was kind of more a good humor. I felt um, they whoever whoever came up with some of the stuff was clearly not actually a romance writer because some of the stuff was just like that's not the way that works. But okay. Um, but it was it was kind of sweet and funny and and, and ridiculous and um, but it had some really sweet just some really sweet moments about like what romance and what stories mean to people um but yeah the humor oh my god definitely definitely watch it but yeah i do i do kind of count my the beginning of my writing journey is that when i decide to sit down and start to start writing down the stories on that on that computer um whatever that first thing was before we had the ibm ps2 um that's when i kind of counted it started in in my head was it was like I f- and, I, and there's a lot that had changed in my life at that point. My life was a little, which is weird to say at 12, my life was more stable, but you know, whatever it is, what it is. My life was very weird. My life was very weird in general, but most, I think most people don't move around outside of military brats. Most people don't move around the way I did. And we're talking sometimes three or four times a year. Um, and even when most summer longer, um, it wasn't for certainly not more than a year. Uh, so being going to kind of one place and being in like a, a single custodial situation, which was my mother getting permanent custody of me kind of thing where I wasn't going to be moving back and forth between family members. Um, you know, I had, it felt like I had the, it, like it changed my perception about, about my own creativity. And like, I, I didn't like need to, the, the stories just to entertain myself. So I, but I was like, what am I going to do with this now? My life has changed, but I didn't want to give up the stories and I decided to start writing them down. So certainly it was a, it was a very different, uh, it was a different sort of, of trans transitional time in my life when I was 12. And so there's definitely something very definitive about that period for me. Uh, and when I, 
and about why I decided to sit down and start writing down story, typing them out, actually typing and I, and I learned to type. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think my writing is better t- typing is because I, I wrote all my first stories typed. I was not a longhand writer. I plot. I, I even back, back then and now I write my ideas down on paper, but I type my stories. And it's like, sometimes when I'm struggling to write out an, uh, something with my hand, I get my hands on the computer and it's like, it's like my, the connection with my brain to my two hands going on the keyboard. It's just different than my hand, my brain to the, to the pen. It's just, there's something wired different. Um, I want you to give me a second. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, where were we? I know. I, I, I went quiet because you said give you a second. So I wasn't sure. Oh, there was a, I got some news. <laughs> oh, okay. I got told something. <laughs> um, we got our insurance settlement for the tree thing. So, uh, oh, it, nice. it was in an email. It was in an email. Um, and, uh, it, you know, so we're talking about, about moving around a lot. I was talking about moving around and that when I was 12, I had, was kind of more settled down sort of. Um, and that my, that that was the time that I realized I could start like writing this stuff down and stories were, were sort of starting to serve a different function in my life at, at that age, because my life structure had changed because we weren't moving around and stories weren't the way I was entertaining myself in my own head through a lot of transition mm-hmm. and entertaining my siblings. So it became like, am I going to get, it's either going to give this stuff up or I'm going to start doing something with it. And I didn't want to give it up. So I started writing it down. But I, the other thing I was saying um, right that time was that um, I learned to type at that exact same time. And so I'm not somebody who, you know, they talk about sometimes what you need to do to be creative is to write your, to write your stories, not type your stories. But I never learned to really write stories. I learned to type them. So it was like I have like a, a, like a hardwired thing with both hands on the keyboard. And I've always written my ideas down, but I type them up. So... Um, I feel like my physical makerspace is in front of the keyboard as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I remember, I, I remember like in college, I would have like some teachers, professors who would talk about, if you want to be truly creative, you have to do it with a pen. And like my, already my brain was not wired that way. Well, so that's it would a be bullshit a... old fashioned idea, right? Right. Yeah, it is. It is. Because that, that, that predates the, the people who, typed their first stories like I did um, on a keyboard or a typewriter. And there are people, and there are more and more and more people now who have never written a single bit of fiction with a pen or pencil, whatever. So that idea, but that, that idea is still being espoused by some writing teachers is that you have to learn to write with a pen and you don't. Okay. You don't. That is, that is just, that's ridiculous fallacy. There is there is something different in the way the brain works when you write, but that doesn't mean that you can't be creative typing. So, but for somebody to tell you the conception, that preconception that people have about the tortured writer. Yeah. God. And I discussed that once in a a essay I wrote for writing and junk. Now people expect you to suffer for your craft, whether you're an artist or a writer, Um, they expect some level of suffering from you. Um, which is ridiculous. Yeah, musicians, the tortured, just a tortured artist is, um, it's a very ugly circumstance. Uh, and you see it glorified. And a lot of really 
talented and famous artists, inventors, writers, musicians in our past were tortured, yes, by mental illness. Edgar Allan Poe comes to mind. Um, and there's no glory in that. Van Gogh was mentally ill. Brilliant, tortured soul. Um, and there's that trope of that kind of torture being required to be creative. And it's ugly. And it was really easy. It's really easy to say, oh, well, he's that way because he's creative. No, honey, he's that way because he's clinically depressed. <laughs> Get him some medication. I mean, with somebody who has got any kind of mental illness or has had difficult life circumstances or whatever, you can't, you can't, you can't disconnect a person from their life experiences. Um, so some of their creativity might be have roots in whatever not not the fact that they're creative but some of the some of the stuff that they have created might be rooted in some of the difficulties they've struggled with or it might be rooted in their mental illness or whatever but that doesn't mean that that's the reason they're creative it just means that that was sometimes the way their creativity expressed itself was driven by their mental illness or the bad the difficult things that they suffered or whatever um but you can treat mental illness times, and still be creative a lot of times when you are suffering your creativity is your outlet and so it does show up as an expression you know if you see that profoundly in the works of edgar Allan poe you see a quiet misery in van gogh's work that's why his work is so provocative and so it speaks to you across time you see it you see his 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 pain and his discontent and you see the paranoia and the fear and the loss of control in edgar Allan poe's work and today we look at that and we say okay yeah he had a mental illness but a lot of people see that and they romanticize it I think one of the most unfortunate things I've ever heard Stephen King say was that if he got um, therapy, he wouldn't be able to write. I hope he didn't I, mean it because it isn't the kind of statement. It, it, it's really unhealthy. It's a really unhealthy thing to say and an unhealthy thing for other people to take on board. I'm not creative because I'm clinically depressed. I'm creative despite my clinical depression. Yeah. And I think sometimes people are more drawn to the works that people create when they're depressed because for whatever reason or when they're in pain because for whatever reason they relate more or it speaks to something that's in pain in them or maybe they find it resonates more. But maybe in that's just sometimes we just don't find that we're looking for the things that resonate for the joy in us, you know, because um, those things exist too. It's just, well, I think a lot of times people really focus on the stuff that res that somebody wrote out of their pain. Because certainly there was a lot of period in my life where writing was my outlet for a lot of my depression and the issues I was struggling with. And my writing was a lot bleaker, a, a very dark at those periods in my life. And there were things that I wrote that I would be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of writing now. Um, I had somebody flat out tell me that my work was better back then that's and I think what they mean is that they're more drawn to the darker work which is fine they're welcome to be more drawn to darker work but it doesn't mean that it's better I don't think there's I any think some people base their their 
metric of quality on what they get out of something. Right. Because I know I'm a better writer now than I was, you know. God, when did I join fandom? A long time ago. What I would say is that you're a better writer today than you were a year ago. Not to say you were a bad writer then. It's just you're a better writer today because that's your goal, right? To be a better writer every day. That's my goal. I want to be better than I was last year or the year before. Um, I want to grow and change and explore circumstances and and stories and ideas uh, and create that ownership that I find really compelling um, every single day. And you have to learn, and I think you have, but new writers, especially new writers, need to learn that you can't base your perceptions of your writing on somebody else's emotional response. And there are a lot of people in fandom who act and speak from a deeply emotional place every single moment they're in fandom. Well, we all have our moments, right? But some people are on 100% of the time every single fucking day. And it's like everything that happens is the worst thing to happen to them ever. And that includes you not finishing your work in progress. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or, you know, not getting to participate in a challenge or rough trade because you didn't have a work to qualify and, you know, we ruined her life. Um, Years ago, we had a challenge called the Mulligan. And in the Mulligan, rough trade participants, previous rough trade participants who had unfinished works they'd started on rough trade that had not been published anywhere could come back to rough trade with that project, post what they had written on the first day, and then go. Is called the mulligan, which is a golfing term, which is a do-over, basically, right? Um, do-over. So we had a do-over, and there was this person who tagged me and Jilly both on Facebook to let us know that we were ruining her life. And I don't know why she included Jilly, because it wasn't like it was Jilly's decision. Um, <laughs> just get the blame with me. Um, because she couldn't participate in that particular challenge. We ruined her whole life and destroyed her dreams as a writer. Now, that particular point was galling because I think that I am very fucking generous with my time when it comes to other writers and fandom. And I didn't appreciate being told. Yeah, we, yeah, we ruined all of our dreams. <laughs> um, I didn't appreciate being told that I had ruined somebody's writing life. Right. And the thing is, I mean, on the one hand, I can understand when you are like, really wanting to do something or maybe you're feeling you're stalled out creatively and you're going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use this challenge to, and you're planning on a challenge. You're going to unstall yourself. And then you find out, Oh, you can't participate in that challenge. Cause to, I, I can understand being disappointed, but, but to just, but for starters to, to externalize that and make that somebody else's fault is ridiculous. But the other thing is to catastrophize it to the point that everything is ruined. The sky is falling. The world is over. What is that? That is what is the point of that? I mean, worst case is I if I was just really struggling to that degree, and I was part of a writing community, go, hey y'all, I would have gone to my community and said, hey y'all, I'm I can't participate in rough trade. I don't have anything that qualifies. Um, does anybody have any suggestions for what I could do to ride along, um, to participate? You know, to participate at least to, uh, you know on the side um, with you guys. You know, just. Help me figure it. Help, help me get out of my own head on this. And go to your writing peeps about what to do. I mean, that's probably the worst case scenario, right? Because um, there are, But the thing is, for me, if I really feel like I need a challenge to keep my ass engaged, there's always a fucking challenge going on that you can get involved yeah. in. I mean, when is there not a challenge going on? I think 
that person in particular was just looking for someone to blame for her problems and I was convenient and you were collateral damage. <laughs> well, yeah, what we, else it could be. Right. And you know, we kind of pushed back on it a little bit like what's the point of you posting about this in public and it's like and just tag, you know, it it was just it was so she odd. She clearly wanted her our attention and she got our attention and she didn't enjoy it. Right. Um, I think she expected one of us or both of us to apologize and let her participate in her own way in violation of all the rules that we established for the challenge. It's like, no, baby, the challenge is already done. It's already set up. There are people who are already know they've already chosen their story based upon the criteria that was laid down. Moving on. The only time I can think of that there was ever a pivot on a challenge was when there was something world-wise or political-wise that made a challenge potentially uncomfortable. And in that case, Kira added a secondary theme for people who were un too uncomfortable with the first theme. Right, that was during that, the Year of the Sentinel. Yeah, we just, people just got uncomfortable writing the Sentinel. And um, there was an additional theme added. I, don't, I think it was for November, maybe? Yeah. Just to um, open it up a little bit and give people some room. You know, because things were hard. And that, so we opened up instead of closing down. You know, we right. we got wider. In our and, and, and for a know. lot of people who, and the interesting thing is for a lot of people who were struggling to come up with something Sentinel to write, the opportunity to have something else to do allowed them to settle in and write something Sentinel. It's like they just, just the fact that they could get away from it if they wanted to. Um, relax them enough to be able to settle into their idea and go ahead and write Sentinel. They didn't have to. That was just, several people expressed that to me. And actually, I had the same experience because I went ahead and wrote Sentinel for that challenge, even though I had been planning to write, to be one of the people who pivoted away from it. But I'm not even sure I, what I wrote for that challenge. Um, I think that was Desiderata for me. <clears throat> was that Heart of the Lion for me? It I think it was. It might have been. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Heart of the Lion. Hmm. So I, I I did end up writing a Sentinel fic, um, but we didn't. But there was it was opening. But a lot of people just kind of went, okay, I've got this option that if this gets hard, I can I can do something else. And I I had I was going to write a shifter story, and then I went, you know what? I got I now I've got a Sentinel, line. and I think that the it was like my brain relaxed once I didn't feel cornered into writing this theme that was kind of had been I'd been struggling with all year, honestly. Because um, it was a rough year. I'm just going to be honest. This was, this was 2020. No one could have predicted that it would have gone down that way. Ever. In my life, if you, in my life, I would have probably predicted a zombie apocalypse before 2020. I mean, and if I'd known what 2020 was going to be, I would not have put our, our Sentinel baby <laughs> there. In that year. It honestly kind of ruined the trope for me. I mean, it came precariously close to ruining the whole thing for me. Which is awful because it's, it's one of my favorites. Um, it was just a terrible year. Yeah, you kind of, I think you, I think the trope kind of maybe a little redeemed itself for you personally with uh, your June Big Moxie. I mean, you seem to enjoy exploring yeah. it, exploring it in a different way. Yeah, I've kind of opened myself up about it, explored it in something different, um, added a concept to it that I found really compelling. I think you guys will enjoy it. Um, and I, it just, I, I just kind of changed my focus of what a Sentinel is and what a guy does and it was it was it was really interesting i i had a good time yeah i've come up with a couple of very different sentinel focused ideas um because i wanted to try to also explore it in some different ways um one of them i talked to you about um 
So, because I, 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 I really, I really also love the trope, and I didn't want to burn out on it myself, you know, um, or to have it be kind of my last memory of writing Sentinel, really, to be 2020. <laughs> the year that time needs to well actually we don't need to forget it because we need to learn some lessons about it but yeah anyway um what else and the thing is i think that sometimes people can get can feel a little start to feel a little when there's too few challenges or too many challenges either can start to feel difficult on their creative space but the thing is you should do as much or as little as makes you feel inspired you don't have to participate in every challenge, but also participating in a challenge doesn't have to be big. That's why we set the targets on these challenges small. Kira, kind of, all of her ideas were big. Um, I don't really have small ones often. That's okay, though, because that's the point. It's well, not, there's no maximum and there's no minimum. Right. Because it's but, supposed to be cozy. Though there is a minimum. Well, yeah, 5K is the minimum. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, what I, yeah that's what I meant. But um, when it comes to, um, but you can write small when that is your challenge. Yeah, yeah. But if you're not but giving I yourself give the, myself some freedom. <laughs> yeah, but when you're, but unless your challenge is specifically to write small, to write something smaller, why, you know, this, why put yourself, why put that that a restraint you don't enjoy on yourself? Right. But all my projects, except for the Requiem one, which was already written, so it's like a, a freebie for me. Um, and I think it's around 30k. Uh, there, it's about they're between 50 and 60k, and I think that's a that, that's a good spot for contemporary. And um, I was struggling with that, which is which was ridiculous. But uh, the oh, word count like we, thing, I was struggling with word count. Yeah, thing. like we've like we've talked about, if you had been writing any of that in Harry Potter, it'd be 150k. So just, right, just just be <laughs> grateful that you were inspired by a contemporary fandom. <laughs> What I wrote for no, what I wrote for the end of the year challenge, which was the soulmate challenge for the Big Moxie, um, I broke my own heart. To be honest, uh, it was, it was really hard to write that first chapter. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, and um, it's uh, soulmates and time travel, which was a little difficult to do in a contemporary setting, but I think I did. I think I did okay with it. Uh, and I'm, I'm really, uh, that's more buck focused, but still. You know, still, even though, even though it's more buck focused, Eddie's still my unicorn. Um, I think that was the intent. I haven't read it in a while. It starts with Buck. There's, I I think Buck has more chapters. I don't. It's interesting because I mean, I guess it's. I mean, I haven't read it. I haven't read it in a minute. You know, but um, I know. I I remember that it definitely started with Buck, and I remember. I, I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't remember. I I certainly don't. When I read something, I don't pay attention to how much. POV of each character exists, but um, well, no, I don't, I don't hear that either. But I do feel like I do feel like Buck's POV dominated that. It, it could just be a perception. Um, yeah, but I've not I, read it in a while either. I, 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 I will. For, you know, I, I will tell you, it was it was Eddie's journey that stuck out to me though in that story. So still, I only my unicorn. but but it, it was Eddie's journey that that is stuck in my brain in that story. But I enjoyed I, I enjoyed the whole thing. But of the of the two, I would say that Eddie's journey was the one that was a little resonated with me a little bit more. So mm-hmm. that's just why I kind of just kind of blinked about when you said it was more buck focused. So it was, and it may be. I, I it'd be interesting to go back and reread it and see, <laughs> and see what my new perception I actually, is. 
plan a uh like how many how much screen time a POV is going to get in a story. It's just what serves this scene the best. What what characters do I need in this scene? Um, who's available for this particular moment? So, but um, I you know I I really enjoyed uh, writing that particular story, but it did break my heart. It has a beautiful happy ending. No worries. Yeah, I believe in a happy ending. The beginning was rough. Yeah, I killed my darlings. <laughs> Steven, I just call you Steven. <coughs> but they get better because it's time travel. Uh but yeah, it's um there's <coughs> there's this thing that you do as a writer where you carve out this space in your in your mind and sometimes in your home um where you are creative, that maker space. Um and I'm really investing late, lately in um the first chapter made me cry like a baby. I ugly cried over writing that first chapter. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> but it's... I ugly cried. <laughs> yeah, y'all are, you, are, but, you are screwed. I mean, it's time travel. But, but like Figure said, it, it out. better. <laughs> Kira doesn't time travel on a whim. <clears throat> they, it, it has to be really necessary. Although one day I do want to write one where they're like, you know what, fuck it, I hate this. Let's let's just try again. See if we can't get a better result. <laughs> that sucked. <laughs> do over. You kind of already done that though. Where? Requiem. I mean, granted, the that sucked. Let's try that again. Is Buck mostly fate letting Buck have an object lesson? But he still does it. At least it's implied that he does well, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sometimes, but he, he, the, the motivation for his, his real big jump for time travel was terrible. Well, but that's what's on screen, but it is definitely, it's yeah. definitely, it's definitely implied in some of the stuff you said that he's had moments where he's tried to fix things and couldn't. So he's definitely been like, I didn't Carl like that. Like, day. <laughs> yeah. Can we try that again? <clears throat> well, that was some shit. <laughs> Can you just imagine? I had I was writing something this week and I had myself just ugly crying. I mean just ugly crying over it. and I'm like is this as sad as it feels like it is or is this just hormones that everything is <laughs> that everything is terrible and rocks have fallen and you know like you know I was talking to a friend and in like a very short period of time like everything went wrong and i was like giving her the list and she's like well, well what just just tell me just like get it all there tell me everything that's happened and i started rattling off the list and we were talking on the phone and i was like and this happened 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 and i think it started with i had worked got i had gotten kind of roped into working on this work project that it just had been too much work in a short period of time and i believe that it, that whole thing had contributed to me getting an, an eye infection because i spent so much time at my computer that like you know your blink rate slows down and i went mm -hmm. up at the end of the weekend i thought i thought my blurry vision and my eye pain was related to too much time on the computer and actually i developed an infection on my eye over the weekend so and so that's kind of the way it started. And then it went through all this doctor crap and the back issues. Just all this stuff happened. And then and then my website got deleted. And and I had this horrible customer service call. It's just like just, just this things after thing after thing after thing after thing. And I and I just and I'm telling her this all this stuff. And then I paused and I went, and my therapist quit. <laughs> she went, 
what? I said, she quit. And she said, she quit you. I said, no, she quit the group. She quit the therapy group I go to. And she doesn't take my insurance anymore. And she went, well, you need to fix that right now because you got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was, I was like, that was. That's point right there. I was like, but that was the capper. I was like, and my therapist quit. <laughs> so I sometimes you don't know if what's going on in your writing, if the way it's making you feel is what's really on the page or just that you're a complete clusterfuck, you know? And it's like. I don't remember what was I it writing. Could be both. It could be both. There was something I was writing where I was like, uh, I was, it was making me, I was just miserable with it. And it, I think it was, it was my period had been two weeks early. And oh, that was the other thing that had gone on in my period was 10, had been 10 days early in that whole fiasco. And, um, and uh, you, you just don't know. Cause I mean, when your hormones are wackadoodle, yeah, you know, and you're writing something and you're like sobbing like a baby, you're like, is this, is this awful? I don't want to make everybody cry. Like I'm crying. And then, um, you go back and read it later and you go, no, this, this is barely sad at all. So have you ever written something you both loved what you wrote and hated yourself for what you did to a character at the same time? Um, We shouldn't encourage Ellie. She's She's done some terrible things. She has done some terrible things. Um, she I don't know. She had trade sobbing like a baby. I don't know if we can trust her. That's true. I I mean, I would, I guess I would say you kind of... <coughs> Um, I mean, sometimes you put things in your, you, you do things, uh, I would say when it comes to anything with Daniel, basically Daniel in 911 is an OC. And so I would say any, anybody going into exploring a story with Daniel is not going to know or be prepared for how much or how little they're going to be attached to that character or because it's like dealing with any OC. Sometimes you really wind up attached to an OC, and sometimes you have no fucks to give about them. So how how you're going to feel about Daniels is is that kind of situation, and to some degree that's about your own character development. Um, I have done things to characters that were like, oh, you, you're just a real asshole right now. To myself, um, because of what I've done, uh, or what I've allowed to be done. Um, I think one of the hardest moments that I've had as a writer- over the past couple of years was writing the beginning of Darkly Loyal um, because Percy Weasley murders Hermione and she was pregnant. And so when it came time to do that ritual, it was really difficult what Harry had to do um, because she was, she, Draco put her in stasis before she died. So she was still, she was still technically alive and he had to do, Harry had to do the work. He had to reap her soul. And when he did, it killed her body. And it killed his son. And it was really, really difficult to write. And I will say that I never intended on having that scene where Zir lets him hold the soul of that baby. It was That was not in my Zero draft originally. Um, I put it in later because I, I felt... Re I, it was really difficult. It was really difficult. And so... I needed to give myself some kind of relief on that issue, which is why Zier brings the soul of their baby to them in that scene later on in Darkly Loyal. That was for me, <laughs> not for you, <laughs> because I was, I was, I was fixated on that part. And so, and it kept cropping up in scenes. So I had to give it some resolution for myself so I could move past it. I could see that. So, um, Ellie, do you mean um, 
that at the beginning <coughs> you wanted them to to take to take uh, Daniel too. I, I'm not completely caught up. So if this is a reference to something recent, I'm I'm not completely caught up on the most recent parts. But I have read the beginning. Trying to see if I am understanding what he's typing. Speak someone said it's zero promise in a puppy. It got pointed out to me recently that there was no puppy in evidence in the epilogue of that story. And I wrote the person back. I said, rest assured, that kid got a puppy. It just wasn't on the beach. Because <laughs> I forgot. I forgot the puppy. <laughs> but there's a puppy, damn it. <laughs> it was just roaming the island. Don't worry about it. <laughs> there's a puppy. You don't see everything. He also got a little sister. <laughs> <coughs> yeah okay so i hated you too no i'm kidding um i understand why you made the choices you made um and i think sometimes you make the best choice you can for your story and when you plot it i could see how it feels like an impersonal decision and then when you're writing it it feels like a very personal choice that you've made um and it I seems think like pov plays a part as well yeah and so it just seems like it's a decision you're making when you're plotting a story, and I know you're a plotter, um, and then when you get to the writing, it feels like, why did I do this to myself? And I've I've had those, definitely had those moments of like, it's not, sometimes it's not even about the character. It's like I'm so miserable. It's like, why did I do this to myself? Um, I remember when you were plotting um, these small hours. I helped title that. Yes, <laughs> yes, you did. You're all welcome. Um, and she was telling me what she was going to do, and I was like, Are you sure? <laughs> I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do that? So later on when I read it, that, that first scene, um, I, that was really horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. I mean, but it, good. It was good. But it was like really emotionally, like you punched me in the face. But And I knew it was coming. So sometimes you write things that serve your story and serve your characters in the future, gives you characterization to work with. Um that are painful, which is really what the advice Stephen King gives about killing your darlings is all about. Um, right. You might mean it literally, but it, but it's also about doing things to your characters that upset you to, to, to tell the story that you have to tell. And there are many ways to die. There are. But one of the things that I think is important, um, Ellie, is, as I recall, you didn't, even though you got them back together because it hurt to pull them apart, in your story, you also didn't short, short, shortcut or short change the emotional toll that that took on everybody, um, on on Daniel, on on Buck, um, on Maddie too. I and mean, you you allude to that about Maddie's <coughs> like bitterness, um, and I think that that's one of the important things. Is a lot of times when people write something painful, they want to immediately heal it, um, and you Even have it isn't realistic. Right. And sometimes if you're going to write, especially if it's a big piece of your plot, like that is your whole setup, right? Is, is Buck, Buck moving to be within a different family. That's your whole setup of your, for your story. So at least, at least half of it, cause you've got another character who's, who's got his own setup. But if you shortchange that emotional development to heal it and make it better too soon, which you didn't, by the way, because you, you 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 put a it's like you put a bandaid on it by getting them back together, but you still let them develop in their own ways. Um, that gives it resonance, and it gives it makes the audience very attached to Daniel, and it makes the audience very attached to Buck, and it makes them very attached to their relationship. So, you 
by develop by developing the consequences of that painful event and letting it it breathe and have natural consequences it has more emotional resonance like look at this beautiful thing that has come out of this thing look at their beautiful relationship which wouldn't be so beautiful if it hadn't had that on-screen time to to develop um and that was one of the things like with these small hours was really important was not to shortchange how difficult that journey was on especially for gibbs but for for either side of that that they had to grow and develop during this period of time when they were apart and that that grief had to be real and it had to be expressed um Otherwise, if you just skip straight to he's back and there's no the story. If, if I had if I had done a big skip over all of that emotional development, especially the emotional development that Gibbs had gone through, which I think is basically skipping like four or five chapters, the story would have no emotional resonance at all. No, I think I think Gibbs's grief and his hope both both are integral to his development. Um, is that you know he's grief he, he's he's grieving Tony, but also he knows that Tony's not gone, completely, and that there's part of Tony you know he, there's potential for his return because somebody has returned from it. So it's beautiful, um, Ellie. When I read that scene in your story that's on our trade right now, I felt like it was Daniel making a profound sacrifice to protect his baby brother that he yeah. let go without making it harder he, that than he needed it to be. Right. He he made a sacrifice and I thought it was beautiful. So that's just my opinion. <clears throat> uh it I'm not saying it I didn't cry because I did. <laughs> but but it wasn't like a tortured cry because I I have faith in you and so I knew I was gonna see something um special and amazing going forward and I did. I have. But it, it did feel like a sacrifice that he was making that he understood that Maddie didn't and that resonated as well you know she didn't understand um her anger fueled by her mother uh made it so she couldn't understand what was being done what 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 was being said what 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 had to happen so I felt like that 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 whole scene was really amazing yeah I was actually worried when you're talking about you you know hating what you'd done to Daniel I was sitting there going I'm not caught up on the latest parts did she kill him we're gonna get a talk uh, i'm just kidding you can kill your characters uh, if you want to i will get i'll no. warn for it so yeah i was like if she, that. but what well, is he a major <laughs> is he a major character though uh oh good lord oh god I that's it get... no more posting i'm gonna turn off posting I'm it's done. over no um <laughs> No, to the, till the end of the month. To the end of the month. Which um, actually, y'all, 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 think about that timing. Don't post on May thirty first. It'll be up for like six minutes and then get deleted. <laughs> right. Now, that's just the cocktease we don't need. Right. Um. So at least give but, people twenty four hours. I think sometimes when you write a scene that is that resonates with you, um, and resonates with your readers, it's it's going to stand out for for years. So years from now, after you've put that up somewhere and in all of its edited glory, um, someone's going to be on a fixed site saying, hey, I read a story once where Buck was online in the womb and Daniel was sick and the Sentinels and God saved him. And there was a scene where the Sentinel God pair came for Buck to keep him safe. And Daniel was really supportive. And that's, that's what's going to stand out for them. That moment when Daniel gave his baby brother to those, to that Sentinel and God pair so that he would be safe. It's going to end up in somebody's fix search. Because it's, I think it's probably one of the, I mean, it's, it's really powerful. It's going to stand out in somebody's mind. 
Yeah. And somebody will come along, oh, I read that. Let me get you a link. <laughs> so, yeah. I honestly fell in love with Daniel when I was writing, um, when I was writing Requiem for the first time. When I brought him, when, brought him onto the scene and he, Evan said, I need you. And I said, I'm on a plane. You know, he's on a plane. He's on a plane immediately. And he invaded, you know, Buck's life the moment he could. <laughs> the moment he was invited in, he's like, I'm staying. Let me get an apartment. <laughs> because he's been at a distance. He thought that's what Buck wanted. Um all this time and now you know buck opened the door and daniel ran through that door you know let it's me like, get my hello. stuff <laughs> this is my stuff this is my business partner he's coming too <laughs> somebody asked me recently if his business partner is his business partner and the answer is yes his business partner is his business partner they, they, they just haven't gotten there yet his business partner um <laughs> um it's interesting because when, because uh, I had, I had talked with Kira a lot about Requiem during, um, like, her plotting process. And it was during Requiem that you cast him as Ryan Reynolds, right? Yeah, that I was, can't get over that, it. It's like, it's permanently done in my brain. <laughs> yeah, well, it should, you, you pretty much headcanon me about <laughs> that. But, and then I read, um, when I started reading, and I, th I think I've only, I think I've read four chapters of, of Morphological Changes, um, Ellie. Um and I just, I just haven't had time to read really much of anything besides I, I stayed, I stayed current on, uh, on, on one story. And I think that's the only thing I've read in like literally weeks, which is just tragic in my opinion, because I miss my reading time. Um, but your Brad, you cast Bradley Cooper, right? I think, I think it was Bradley Cooper, if I'm remembering that correctly, because I see it in my head. So I, I, you definitely, um, God, if I got that wrong, I'm going to feel like a complete idiot because I, I said when I read your story, I saw it really vi vividly in my brain that it was Bradley Cooper. Um, or maybe I'm saying the actor's name. Maybe I'm seeing the right person in my head but saying the wrong name. Let me see what... da, 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 da. I'm, I'm busy Googling. I'm not sure I looked at her. I th I'm sure I even looked at her um, cast page. Da, 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 da. I mean, I'm sure I did actually look at it because I put all the posts that go up on the project files. Um You'd think I didn't know how to navigate Rough Trade, but I really do. I really do. It usually doesn't take me this long to find something. Oh, oh someone emailed me and asked me about if I would um, be okay with them recasting Randolph Rampart. And I said, no, I wouldn't. Thanks for asking. That's your OC. And then she was like, well, I want to write him younger. I said, guess what? Tom Selleck used to be younger. There are tons of pictures of him online. You won't have a problem. If you have a problem, look up Magnum. Yes, it's Bradley Cooper. Okay, it's Bradley Cooper. I was, yeah. So I, but I, I was seeing it so clearly in my head with when I was reading the story that now there's like I got two Daniels occupying my brain. You know, the, the Bradley Cooper Daniel. <laughs> I picked Ryan. I'm sorry. I just and, I, and the, I, 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 I myself. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, so I, I would say I have not got, I, so I did a really good job of, I was pretty incepted on Kira's, Kira's casting with Ryan Reynolds, but you write, you write Daniel very differently. So it makes sense that, you know, that I'm envisioning and seeing, and it, he's living and breathing and moving in my head very differently. And, and, and I think that's great. So I think you've done a really good job of bringing him to life in, with your own vision. Um, and I think that's what you have to do when you're writing a character, um, even if you use a, 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 even if you are using a, yes, it is unfinished. Um, even if you're using a, um, 
the same casting as somebody else that you uh, have to have to envision the character in your own in your own way, and you have to bring them to life in your own way. And I definitely f- saw your vision for for Daniel in in the story in what I read so far, and I really enjoyed your your vision for Daniel. Ryan Gosling. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure Ryan Gosling's a Buckley. <laughs> no, I mean I would. No. He could be an asshole ex of Bucks, though. He could. Just saying. Putting that out there. Maybe he's Chad Rogers. I've never cast Chad Rogers. That's hysterical. <laughs> uh, Chad Rogers. He is an OC in the background of my fix. That he's either a problem he, or he's, not. He's depending always, on my mood. He's always trying to get into Bucks' pants. <laughs> in a good way or a bad way. Just depending on the story. Um... Although in Eddie's mind, it's always a bad way. <laughs> but uh, Chad Rogers, I actually kind of want to write a stalker fic, um, but now I feel like I've I've humanized Chad Rogers too much, and I can't use him for that. So I have to think up a new stalker. I I plotted a stalker because I actually think, I think I had stalker on my bingo card. Um, not not one of my. No, I don't. I wouldn't put stalker. Actually, I don't think I'm not that I wouldn't, but I don't think I've ever put stalker in one of our bingos. I think I had stalker on one of our, so I did plot a stalker um, thing. Oh, where, surely and it will be Robert in some form or another, or Bradley. <laughs> um, Robert Bradley. I always uh, if there's anybody named Bradley or Robert in one of my stories, you could know there's they're they're an issue. It, it Maybe even just a minor <laughs> issue, but they're an issue. Um, they're going to be a pain in the ass normally, but. Um, yeah, and it was somebody in his, uh, in uh, and I wanted to tie in the whole slut shaming thing, kind of the stalker thing, that uh, that people were kind of making fun of this guy hitting on Buck because um, it was sort of a slut shaming thing, and Buck was sort of like one day just kind of goes, since when did it become since when did sexually sexual harassment at the in the workplace become okay just because um, I like to have sex kind of thing, but anyway, oh, did, does he work for the one eighteen? Yeah. That's that was the. Yeah. It's definitely going to be somebody new who came in, but I would also have to use somebody new because I can't use anybody I've got now. Right, and there's a really funny moment in um, my Sentinel fic where Christopher goes to the 118 to meet Buck's coworkers because Eddie's not working there yet. Um, he's four. Christopher's four, and he's trying to get Buck to eat a Twinkie, and. Um, Eddie doesn't like Twinkies and Buck doesn't think they're food. And Chad Rogers goes, we need to rescue this precious kid from these two idiots. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> because they won't let him have Twinkies. <laughs> so now I can't use him for nefarious purposes because he made me laugh. <sighs> that's, that, that, that's what happens when you have OCs that you use a lot. That they kind of like insidiously get into your good graces even when you write them as an asshole. Most of the time. <clears throat> I uh, I wrote my first novel when I was 12. I don't want to put an age on my last. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I hear you. I don't want to ever say I wrote my last novel when I was 70. I never want to say that. I, I, I never want that to be true. So, you know, maybe one day I'll only be able to write in my head and that will be fine. Because I've told myself hundreds of stories that never made it to paper or, you know, a digital screen. I had The sad thing is there are some stories that... I really, really, really wanted to get to paper, 
that I overtold in myself in my head. And it's like, nope, that's going to just have to continue to occupy mind space because no. Sometimes I'll have this idea percolate in my brain for months. Um, and I'll approach it from like 20 different angles before I ever get to the point where I zero draft. And Shattered was one of those. That That's my um, quarter four. That's my Q4 for Moxie, for the big Moxie. Um, I was I was percolating on loss and sacrifice and missed opportunities and what that would mean. And it was like, I spent months and months and months just thinking of different ways to accomplish what I wanted to explore. So when I finally sat down to write, I hadn't told myself the story over and over and over again, but I had explored a whole bunch of different things related to it. Does that make sense? And so it was like, it was just easy to, it just kind of poured out of me. All the stories that I wrote for the Big Moxie um, were just like, like water. They just pour right out of me like water. Oh, honey, I would not scene chart under the threat of my own life. <laughs> just, there's no fucking way I could do it. If I scene charted, I, I would be done. I'll just post a scene chart. There you go. There's your story, guys. Here it is. It's done. Have fun with that. And actually, and the fave is some people would be perfectly happy with that, which, okay. But I have some people who are convinced they want to read my grocery list. You don't. Yeah, there would definitely be an insert sex here <laughs> all over my scene map. <coughs> well, listening to me bitch about other customers in the grocery store isn't quite the same thing as me listing off all the things I'm going to buy at the grocery store, Lady Holder. Though she, one day she did have to cut tape, talk me down off a cliff when I walked into my Kroger and they changed the floor plan overnight. <laughs> that that heifer handed me a map. I was like, what? I can't. At least they gave I you a map, though. No, I left get... the store. I could not do it. When I walked into my grocery store, if they'd given me a map after the rearrangement, I'd have been so grateful. But when you walk in and they're just like, nothing's where it used to be. And there's no explanation. And there's no... <sighs> Although, you know, nothing compares to me having an epic tantrum because I couldn't find my bread in the grocery store. I'm looking on the phone. I want to be independent, right? So I'm on my phone. And it says my bread is on aisle five. I go to aisle five. My bread's not there. There's no bread on aisle five. It's There's some natural food, but there's no bread. Bread's on aisle right. six. So I go over to aisle six. There's not that brand of bread and not even anywhere near that brand of bread. There's supposed to be like 10 or 15 different, between bagels and breads and muffins. There's supposed to be like 10 or 15 different things from this, this brand. And nothing. And I'm like, okay, it says it's on aisle five. So I'm pacing around between aisle five and aisle six. Like I just in loops trying to figure out where the fuck this bread is. And it says there's tons. And so I finally grab an employee and I said, um, where is this bread? And they said, oh, it's on aisle five. I said, it is not on aisle five. Do not, do not with me on, there's no bread on aisle five. And the, and the other employee goes, breads are on aisle six. I said, it is not on aisle six. Where is this bread? It says that there are at least 10 of this particular thing in stock, and I want it, and I want it now, and I'm tired of walking around in circles. That's when the dude goes, it's in an end cap at the end of aisle five. And I go, I hate all of you. Because, <laughs> of course, that's the one way. It was actually on an end cap. It was on an end cap between aisle five and aisle four. So I was circling the end caps between aisle five and aisle six, and I hadn't looked back the other direction. <laughs> And I'm like, an end cap is not so furious. I'm like, an end cap is not an aisle. Fuck you all. I actually didn't say fuck you all, but I did say an end cap is not an aisle. And then I wandered off saying, fuck all of you. 
<laughs> I got my bread and two packages I, of bagels. I make my grocery list in order of pickup as I walk in the door. I start in produce. I end in dairy. I have done this for three decades. This is how I do it. This is how I expect it to be done. This is how my husband was taught to grocery shop after I started dating him. Because he had issues. So when I walk into my store, and they give me a map. And my shit isn't where it's supposed to be. I, I had to leave. Go sit in my car and talk to Lady Holder. <laughs> I always just sit and plan. But I, I always end in the frozen section. But dairy is right before the frozen section. So Yeah. yeah. I mean, I... I, I got, but I also I also have my freezer bag, you know, and I pack everything cold in the freezer bag. Yeah, I have insulated bags too. Um, I, I I like to get my milk last. I just it's just a thing I do. Yeah. So, um, I but really I have a little milk. hot and cold bag. I really buy milk. That's one of those things. My I husband that, drinks between two and three gallons of milk a, a week. It's just I I I know this this is not a fair thing to have said, but I got really. This nutritionist was getting really shirty with me about the fact that I don't drink milk because she was wanting me to drink. It's like everything, every solution to every little bit of protein deficiency was to drink a glass of non-fat milk. And I was like, no, I don't drink milk. I rarely consume milk. I don't care for milk. And so I'm like, and so she just kept putting a glass of non-fat milk, two or three spots. I'm like, no, I told you I don't drink milk. And she said, well, what's the problem with milk? I said, I'm not a baby cow. <laughs> and she just looked so startled and she was like uh you know it's okay to drink milk I said that not a baby cow I am not consuming the muju <laughs> I mean at this point you should have just lied and said you were allergic it would have been easier to say you it were lactose intolerant but I mean she just would not listen to me that I don't enjoy drinking milk milk for me is like a little bit of it on cereal on occasion otherwise I do not consume this stuff and if there's nobody else in the house who's drinking milk at any given time it, there's no milk because I it's just not something I have any of so um, but yeah when she just got really like what's the problem with milk I said I am not a baby cow I drink 2% she couldn't get me to drink non-fat milk that's ridiculous that's right. just white water that's, I mean, just, that's, just, that's just gross I mean honestly and one of the things I told her um, in, a, in, a, in another session I said I also am surprised that you a nutritionist are telling somebody who is diabetic to drink non-fat milk the, the milk sugars are very insulinogenic and they cause blood sugar spikes and you need a little bit of fat with it to keep your blood sugar from going crazy and she said Right. Well, I don't think that I don't think that's true. And I said, uh -huh. it's a hundred percent true. In fact, my diabetic nutritionist said I should drink whole fat milk over two percent. That's what the first nutritionist I saw after I was diagnosed told me too is that I should have that I shouldn't have a ton of it, but that if I was gonna drink milk I should have whole milk. That it would be much better for my blood sugar to have the the because and honestly, if you're on a keto diet, they 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 tell you to use whole milk because the fat helps neutralize the carbs. So it, support, it supports your blood because honestly, the the I've never seen my my blood sugar go as wackadoodle as having non-fat dairy. It's terrible. the 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 milk sugars are terrible for blood sugar. It's awful. I I honestly think straight cane sugar would sometimes be have it been better. But I've also had diabetic nutritionists um, suggest that I eat uh, that I go a full keto diet. I said, "You mean like you know eat the fat bombs and all that stuff?" And she said, "Yeah." I said, so what should I do about no. my high blood pressure? And she said, what? I said, I have high blood pressure and cholesterol problems. So what you're suggesting that I do. I don't know that. 
I wasn't talking to you, um, is load myself up with fat to avoid sugar and get heart disease. (laughs) You need to pay attention to what you're often suggesting people do. Because that is ridiculous. Not that I would do one of those fat bombs. They look disgusting. I don't, I I mean, I don't know what the fat bombs are. It's like a whole bunch of, um, yeah, here's one. It's a 10 minute Kato fat bomb. And this is what it's got in it. I mean, I know what Kato is, but I'm not certain what a fat bomb is because I'm, I'm not familiar with that terminology because, I mean, I've certainly seen a lot of keto, um, things like my sister drinks like the bulletproof coffees, which have like coconut oil in them. Um, okay, here is a Kato fat bomb. One half cup of natural creamy peanut butter, one teaspoon of stevia, two tablespoons of unsweetened cocoa powder, one pinch of salt, and one tablespoon of water. That doesn't actually sound half bad, except for the stevia. I don't like stevia. I mean, take the stevia um, and the water out. Why do you need those things? What's wrong with peanut butter? Here's one with almond butter, chia, chia, C-H-I-A, chia, chia, chia. Chia, chia, yeah. chia seeds, powdered sugar, milk. Um, basically, you just put all these fat stuff together and make it into a little ball and eat it. Ew. No, I don't think so. I mean, why not? I mean, if you're gonna, if you want something that's like a snack, that's uh, that there are fats that are really good for you. If you want a really right. high in fat, I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with eating peanut butter on a diabetic diet. No, so just, just eat the fucking peanut butter. But they also do ones with meat. So no, like your you, your whole plate me. is basically meat. Um, I wouldn't do it. I'm just saying that they they have all these weird things. I mean, I know there's um, a lot of weird stuff in the keto diets, but I mean, my issue is not a lot of times with keto isn't even the fat. Um, although it the it depends on the fat source. Some fat sources, I mean, some fat sources better than others. But my kidneys would would croak on the amount of protein in a keto diet. Right. They just they just, they just keel over and go no. And you know, no one's gonna. I'm not gonna get new kidneys. So I'm I'm stuck with the ones I've got. And <laughs> let's not wear them out. My pancreas is already at risk of wearing out. Let's leave the kidneys in place. Right? You can leave my stuff alone. It's not too much to ask. Anyway, so the, your writing journey. I agree with you. I don't. I don't want to even begin to think about what might be my last. Because I hope. I hope my last story is the one I'm working on um, when I die. You know. Hopefully, a long, long way down the road, because um, <clears throat> I don't want to conceive. Because, like you said, there, there, I could conceive of a day where um, um, I might stop publish posting my work online. I, I could conceive of that. I've, I've taken breaks already that people aren't even aware of from posting. So I don't know why you know longer breaks would be anything unusual. But I think as long as I think as long as I. Pre- guard my boundaries and continue to write what inspires me I don't see an end to to you know what you call like the maker space for me because this is this has been ongoing for like you said 35 plus years for me if I live to be 97 I hope I'm still writing yeah it would be nice to be 99 and still writing you know and in possession of my faculties to have some clue I mean it'd be great to be 99 and still writing gay porn but that would make you the most popular lady of the nursing home. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, you know, so-and-so lives in room 202. She's a porn writer. What kind of porn does she write? Gay, por- <laughs> gay, gay porn. Oh, do you think she'd give me some tips? 
Are you finally admitting? Yeah, I am. <laughs> Her you roommate let it eat newspaper. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I uh, I don't know. There's just like this this. I think every writer has that influence in their life where they are concerned about their productivity and their longevity, um, their physical ability, their mental ability, um, and what happens when all that starts to be an issue. Um, I do have some mild arthritis in my hands, so it is a concern, you know. Um, I think about it. I try to do hand exercises every day. I have some little squeezy balls. <laughs> Are you doing <laughs> that? I <laughs> are you doing some ball torture? I, have, I am doing some ball torture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, STDs are a real problem in um, nursing homes because a lot of those old people don't believe in condoms. <laughs> I'd be like, you know, flinging condoms at people. You know, do it, but be safe. But um, and also, also, it needs to be said that dementia patients and Alzheimer's patients can also can can sometimes be hypersexual, and um, it's a problem in nursing homes. I've seen more than one naked old man as a result <laughs> of volunteer work. It's like, oh, I didn't need to see that. <laughs> oh, I'd be like, you know, I was one time when I was at the nursing home, um, visiting family member. I was like. Okay, the nudity is one thing. It's the half nudity, you know. Could you just be all nude? I I, I struggle. I str I struggle with the naked bottom half and then wearing a t-shirt. I don't understand why this is such a popular look, but it doesn't work for me. Why do you just take off your the pants? The first time, the first time I watched um, Daredevil, not not Daredevil. Um, what's it? What's it with Ryan Reynolds and the that uh, uh, oh it? Deadpool. Deadpool. I watched Deadpool. And remember when he gets his legs cut, uh, bone off and he has to wait for them yeah. to go back? And he, he's yeah, sitting there on the couch in that that's, shirt. That's in Deadpool too, yeah. Dude? He's, he's shirt-cocking it, yeah. That dude's, that, he's shirt-cocking it. Ever since I heard that term, it's all I think of when I see somebody <laughs> doing that. They're shirt-cocking it. Just, the other day, shirt I shirt-cocked it. it. <laughs> My husband's like, no, you're not. Yes, I am. He's like, <laughs> Despite your delusions, you don't actually have a dick for anybody to suck. I was like, I, I beg to differ. You can, whip, you can whip it out right now if you want to. <laughs> I got one. It's just not on my body. That's right. You got Honestly, also, I feel like somebody wearing a shirt with no pants and no underwear is very vulnerable. It does it feels feel vulnerable and weird. It feels much more vulnerable than just being like when I am completely naked, which makes no sense, right? <laughs> When I have to get change clothes in a medical facility, especially if I have to get all like, disrobed completely, you know, even because they usually put you in a gown or something. When I'm getting redressed, I always dress the bottom half first. You know, it's like I can I can be completely naked. OK, I can be naked from the waist up. OK, I cannot be naked from the waist down. <laughs> I I if I if, if I have had to take up all my clothes, the first thing I do is put on my underwear and my bra. Mm -hmm. Then I'm no longer naked. <laughs> Just get that out of the way. Underwear and bra, and then I'm okay. I got the rest on. When I this is one back procedure <coughs> I have done. They go, you take off everything from the waist down, and I went. I always kind of struggle with that. I'm like, really, really? Can't I just take everything off? <coughs> give me a gown like a give, give me a gown like a normal place. You know, they do. They give me a gown, but that can I put have, it on over my. Can I have two hospital gowns? 
right? One for the I front. usually ask the two. One for the back. <laughs> you wear one like a robe and one like a gown. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty tip. <laughs> Otherwise, you're running around holding the thing together in the back. Like, you know. And now we have had a tangent about getting old and our butts hanging out at the nursing home. That's the way I have conflated this whole discussion to be. <laughs> now, pro tips for those of you who don't want to get n- naked in a gynecologist's office or um, have this stupid cape in um, Mammogram's office, you can buy your own hospital gown on Amazon. Last time I went to the gyno, I they time before last, they had switched from gowns to pa- disposable paper, and I understand why. Um, so I had like a little paper jacket and then a little paper blanket. And y'all, it was unacceptable. Really? So I went on Amazon and bought myself a hospital gown. So next time I went into the, gy- the gyno, I was like, she offered me, I said, oh, no, honey, don't worry about it. And I pulled my hospital gown out of my purse. And she busted out laughing. I said, you're not giving me that ridiculous paper again. And she said, that's the best thing I've ever seen. I said, fine, I'll be your funny story, but I'm still wearing my own hospital gown. And the guy called just came in laughing. She said, you really did bring your own. I was like, yeah, I brought my own. I'm bringing my own everywhere now. <laughs> it's a permanent member of my car. It's in my glove box right now. Well, yeah, <laughs> when you when you've got a little paper a little paper drape that barely covers your nipples and then you've got this weird little they call it a sheet but it's like this paper other paper drape that barely covers your lap and you're like 20 can inch I have, by 20 inch piece of paper. Can I have no. six can I have six of these paper drapes and can I can you give me some time and some tape to tape them together into a suitable covering? I need some masking tape immediately. <laughs> I'm having a craft emergency. So, so I bought my own hospital gown and I stand by it. Get your own. You can get some on Amazon. 10 out of 10 do you recommend. Even if they give you looks, it doesn't matter. You still have your hospital gown. You take it with you. I know. I got my hospital gown. I don't need their stupid paper. <laughs> they could keep their stupid paper to themselves. So I told my GP what I had done. And after she stopped laughing, she said, that's a really good idea. I'm going to go get me one too. <laughs> Who wants to be there? <coughs> Butt naked in pub. Well, it's still public, right? I mean, you're in your own little room. But some asshole could come in off the street. It isn't like being in your house naked. Why do they all why do they all need to tie in the back? I just want to know. Maybe I don't want to know. Well, mine tie at the top. And on the side. I have a tie on the top of my shoulder on both sides and then one on the side. Well, you're just gonna have to send me a link, aren't you? Yeah, the one Lady Hunter got us over here is a, ba- a a back tie. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I highly recommend it because I n- no. And they also tried to give me a paper jacket for a chest X-ray, and I was like, no, I won't need that. Well, ma'am, you just can't walk around half naked. I was like, I got my own gown. <laughs> she said, what? I said, like, I pulled it out, and she said, okay. <laughs> I come out of the little room with my gown on and my jeans because they let me keep my bottoms. And the x-ray tissue's like, where'd you get the hospital gown? I said, I brought it. <laughs> I don't care if it makes me look crazy. I don't. I do not care. If you spend as much time as I do with the medical establishment, they should just be used to the things people do. That's right. I'm bringing my own gown. Deal with it. <coughs> just um, Yeah, that's the one that I got. The one that, the one that Lady Holder just posted. Is eleven ninety five? Yeah. Now the one I got was I ended up getting a bigger size because of my boobs. Um, 
I think I got a 3XL, just so I have boob room. And not have to worry about stuff falling out the side, you know? Boobs falling out the side. My boobs are a little bigger than normal. Well, Anyways. Front and, tie. Front tie sounds good. Front tie or side tie. Yeah, I don't, you know, because you want to be able to put it on yourself. Because they're not going to want to help you put it on because they don't want you to have it. But, if they can think I'm a prude if, I, if they want to, I don't care. It's not actually about being prudish because I don't care who sees me naked. Um, it's about vulnerability. Um... And when you have the triggers that I have, the last thing you want to do is feel vulnerable in public. <clears throat> yeah, you having one with pockets is really handy because then you can stick your cell phone in it in case of an emergency. Mm -hmm. <coughs> you know, I really appreciate that Apple has given us more privacy options and made it such that, um, well, they've made it such that we can tell apps we don't want to be tracked on stuff that means that apps that ads used to be specific to what i wanted to see and now they're not they're not right remotely remotely specific at all to what i want to see so you know y'all don't want to see this but i'm not sure i care <laughs> i mean honestly Get yeah, get your own hospital gown, especially if you're being forced to wear paper at the at the gynecologist or the proctologist or whatever in between. Jillian, buy two get one free. You know, it's bulge enhancing. Feel and look your best in premium bamboo underwear for men. <laughs> I guess that's for, not really <laughs> for men, really by the way. Your... It's the icon that's on the bulge enhancing that really does it for me. Just let them know so that you know which bulge is being enhanced. Right. Well, no, it's a fucking rhino. Wait, what? <laughs> and then it's got a it's got a man shaped pouch. As opposed to what shaped pouch would men's underwear have? <laughs> Shit. Mm, 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 mm. I tell you something. When I am ready to shop for men's underwear, I'm not buying from this brand just because I think their ads are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> not that I plan to ever shop for men's underwear, especially not you know, bulge enhancing men's. Yeah, the, I you mean, know. you know, I my husband has very specific requirements for his underwear. They don't meet the grade. But <laughs> this, oh, he doesn't need a man-shaped pouch. But twice is maybe a llama-shaped no. pouch. Hmm. T-Bowed, you need to go to the corner. Who is this? You're new in the corner. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> T-Bowed. Now, now I'm thinking inexplicably about the T-Birds, and that is your fault. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. <coughs> so like I said, I appreciate, I appreciate privacy, but at the same time, there's something to be said for targeted advertising, and this is not targeted at all. Although, mark. because I had surgery, people keep sending me, like, stuff for, like, you know, canes and, um, and, and, no, I, I almost said strollers, but, uh, what you call it? What you call it when you got both hands walk on it? Walker? Walkers. Yeah, they, I had an ad for a really cool walker with wheels. <laughs> I was like, that looks really handy. <laughs> I was really tempted to buy it. I don't need it. I don't need a walker. Sometimes I do need a cane because stairs. Um, and that's more about an issue of balance than um, like needing it for strength. Because, um, 
you know, everything is back almost where it should be as far as strength goes. Um, but I can get a little unbalanced when I'm going upstairs. <coughs> so I use a, um, that's so cute, Twy. I use a, uh, a cane. It's, it's, it's a big daddy cane. Um, <laughs> to go up and down the stairs. Big daddy. Oh, you mean like one of those stability canes? Yeah. The little foot. Yeah. The quad cane. I also have one of those. I have an actual quad cane with legs that I use by my desk chair. So if that was your suggestion, because I was having a hard time getting up and down after my surgery, because um, I didn't have enough brace anywhere. And so I got one of those canes and it worked out really well as sometimes far as like having just, a place to brace. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to have something to hold on to. <sighs> Very helpful. Um, I don't even want to know what they're talking about in the chat room right now. I'm afraid of it, to be honest, and I don't fear much. Anyways, um, I think that on the whole, uh, I there are problems in fandom, obviously. Um, there are toxic behaviors and toxic people, toxic situations, and, you know, fandom silos that create ugly, ugly environments and attitudes. But also. As a makerspace, I find fandom to be one of the most opening, open and interesting that I've, that I've ever been in. Um, there is a level of encouragement in fandom that I've never gotten in any, in any professional space from other writers. Because <coughs> in fandom, there is no currency. Or there shouldn't be. Um, and a lot of times in pro, in, in pro environments, and even in big writing groups that are they're professionally oriented there is this edge of competition that um can make relationships with other writers difficult but that isn't something that i've really encountered in fandom people can i mean i've seen people make things competitive but it's usually like a one-off thing it's not like it's a general thing that people do you know it's just it's it's like some people get it in their care to in their care in their um in their in their head to make some things a competition like people will really get into talking about oh i got they're comparing their comment and kudo counts and stuff but i don't That's so weird but i tend to do just that. when i start seeing people do stuff like that I, I immediately start taking them like not taking them very seriously because that's just weird that's just weird ass behavior i'm just putting that out there if you're pondering, comparing comment and kudo counts to people, there was a there was a time for a while, and it may still be going on. I haven't been on um, Facebook in a minute in any meaningful fashion, um, where there was a group where people. It was like the standard thing to do would be to post a screenshot of the the number of kudos you got overnight and the number of comments, new comments you got, and it was just like what. It is just such weird and toxic behavior because it gets to the point where you start to feel like people are just pretending to be supportive. Like, look at this asshole, right? <laughs> I think, look at this asshole is in Midwestern for, so this bitch. <laughs> right? <laughs> so ever since someone sits down with you and says, so this bitch, you're about to hear a great story. Just wait for it. <laughs> I think there is this um, misconception about Southerners and storytelling. Now, I have met some amazing storytellers that are Southern. <clears throat> but it's not like we're all that way. <laughs> I've met some really awful storytellers, too. I've met <clears throat> some outright liars. Just straight up lie. Like it's their hobby. 
or, you know, or their job, <laughs> depending on where they work. Um, but my grandfather told really good stories in a very quiet way. And he'd start and he'd finish. And sometimes you wouldn't know he was done until he walked away. And then you're like, oh, wait, <laughs> let me go back and think about what he said because <laughs> he was done. And that was all you were going to get. And I remember those, I remember those stories um, fondly. And there is this, I think that people don't always get the difference between a storyteller and a writer. Um, because my grandfather would have never considered himself a writer, but he did consider himself a storyteller. I like to think I'm both, but not everybody is. And there, there is a distinctness about it. Um, being able to tell a story and being able to write a story. There's a different kind of um, voice required, I think. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. He wouldn't have ever called himself a writer because he couldn't e he couldn't either read nor write. And I often wonder if he had had those tools in his belt, <coughs> if his perspective would have been different. I mean, he was born in 1900 and was working a farm by the time he was 12. And the only one of his siblings that got to go to school was his sister. The rest of the children, the boys, all the boys had to work on the farm. Hmm. Honestly, that's what they were born for. His father believed children had one purpose, and that was to work his farm. It's a harsh man. I'm glad, I'm glad to have never met him. Um, but my grandfather uh, eventually left that farm, left that state, came to the state where he met, my, where he met his first wife, and then eventually met my grandmother. <clears throat> and he worked in a mill his whole life and ended up dying of lung cancer. <coughs> from working in that mill his whole life. And he had this immensely interesting... He's been on my mind lately, because I'm going to tell you a story about that. He's been on my mind lately. Because I was at Publix, that's a grocery store in the South. I think it's out of Florida. Um, and they had yellow watermelon. And I haven't had a yellow watermelon in an age. I mean, it's like been forever. And I have this distinct memory of my grandfather, um, who grew watermelon across uh, some chicken wire um, over the pig pen on his own farm. And these vines would come up out of the ground and the melons would be over this, um, over this section of the pig pen. And there would be cantaloupes and honeydew and watermelons. And he had two kinds of watermelon. He did a red and he did a yellow. Now, every year, there were only about four yellow watermelons. <coughs> and so they were a special treat when you got one. When you got to have some of one, and he would, when it, this watermelon was so was perfect when it would come off the vine. It would, you would cut it down the middle, and it would crack like an apple. It would be so crisp, and sweet, and amazing. Oh, it was so good. Anyways, I was at Publix, and I saw a yellow watermelon, and I was like, Oh God, I really want one. I want it to be so. My expectations were not met. Uh oh. It was not great. It was already mushy. It was already mushing. Oh, you like when you move they're starting to get kind of um, mealy? Yeah. Oh, I hate that. I was really upset. I was really upset. But then I was thinking about it. And even if that watermelon had been perfect, it still wouldn't have been my grandpa's. Because here's the thing about melons and fruits, especially strawberries. Anything that's really, really heavily water-based, like a watermelon um, specifically, is that they taste like the ground they come out of. Um, so watermelons and tomatoes specifically um, will taste different from depending on where they come from around the world. Their acidity will be different for tomatoes. The sweetness will be different for watermelon. Um, it will not taste the same. So I will never get to eat my grandfather's food again. The food that he grew. So even if this watermelon had been perfect, it still wouldn't have tasted the same. And so it was kind of sad. 
That is sad. Carlos enjoyed it. Yes, I thought my dog eat watermelon. Don't, don't, don't come for me. He really had a good time. <laughs> <coughs> I had to wash his face down with water afterwards, though, because he was a sticky mess, but he had a great time. Yeah, I mean, if you go to a farmer's market, you're going to get a different, you'll get the same products, but a different quality to the products than you would if you got them at the grocery store where they're mass produced in big commercial farms. Um, like corn is not going to taste the same. Strawberries won't taste the same. Blueberries aren't going to taste the same. There's going to be a slight variety, very, there's, there's going to be a variance in the taste and in the texture um, based on where it was grown and how it was grown. But tomatoes especially um, take on the flavor of the ground they're grown in, which is why you'll find that tomatoes grown in like hydroponics situations don't taste very good because they don't have any of the nutrients they would get out of the soil. And so it makes a big difference. Lettuce is the same way. If you, if you, <coughs> lettuce grown in like water gardens in your kitchen or something aren't going to taste the same as, as lettuce you'd buy that's been grown in the dirt. It's, it's just, it's going to be different. Um, so, you know, honestly, I have a cousin who cannot stand to eat organic vegetables because her only vegetable experiences come from commercial vegetables that are doused in chemicals. So she expects that. So organic vegetables don't taste like they should to her. So it freaks her out. She doesn't like it. And I only buy organic because the last thing I need is more chemicals in my body that I don't know what they are. Um, <clears throat> but uh, she just, <coughs> it just depends. So yeah, it's, you know, it was a, it was, I'll never buy another one to be honest. I'll never buy another yellow watermelon because I was so disappointed and it ruined my childhood. I love strawberries and peaches um, and blueberries and I love blackberries. Oh my God, I love blackberries. I wasn't allowed to go blackberry picking with the rest of the family when I was little because I would eat more than I would put in the bowl basket whatever isn't that like a I comes out with a, a rite of passage mouth. <laughs> yeah but well my grandma wanted such and such amount so she could make jam <laughs> to last yeah. a whole year <laughs> I didn't get to go on the blackberry picking trip I, I mean I would have eaten a lot of ba I, I actually when we used to go strawberry picking um, we could just eat however many we wanted. There's only so many, I mean, you could only eat so many strawberries. So that was like part of the deal is you get to eat as many strawberries as you want out there. And then, but you had to bring, you know, you had to bring back enough strawberries at the end of the whole thing. So, right. Right. So well, we, we, we were, we weren't as fastidious then as I am now. So we would just eat them straight off the plant, you know? Yeah, I would too. I totally would. I could not be trusted in a strawberry patch <laughs> or in a peach tree. <laughs> Just could not be trusted. I'll take a peach right off a tree and eat it. Honestly, there's nothing better. There's nothing more delicious in the world than eating a sun-warmed peach right off the tree. Yeah. I wouldn't do it now, but there's nothing better. Really. Nothing better. No, my grandfather did not use... Um, he was a natural farmer when it wasn't even cool. <laughs> he didn't use any chemicals or pesticides. And we just don't want to talk about what he used for fertilizer, but it's, don't, don't, don't even think about it. Well, fertilizer... You know, the more natural, mm. the better. <laughs> mm. Well, just think about the Martian. <laughs> we live next to a cattle farm, ranch, whatever. <clears throat> well, y'all are putting it all to good use. <laughs> it's my favorite. It's my favorite episode of uh, Dirty Jobs. Remember the cow pot maker? Did you ever see that episode? I did not. 
No. It is probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen on TV with this guy. Mike Rowe was so funny. He goes out there to, to meet this guy who is got a self-sustained thing where the guy, he... I, th- I don't remember what he used. The cows, I think, were just dairy cows. He j- they made the milk and stuff. He sold. I think he sold some of the milk. But he he, he gathered up their manure. And he ha- he created this own little invention thing that separated the methane from the solid. Se- it separated the solid from the liquid waste. Right. The um, methane was used. He burned it to heat his home. The liquid waste was used as fertilizer. So when they separated the liquids off from the cow manure and the solid waste was treated uh, through this process that he had developed to remove all bacteria and like matter that was, you know, basically dangerous. And he made these little planters, you know, he made this sort of this material that the, the solid matter from the cow manure became these they called they called them cow pots and they were little planters and you could put like little seedlings in them or whatever and then plant them straight in the ground as their own like little fertilizer pots and that they would dissolve into the ground over time and the they would act as fertilizer for the plant as it grew that's fucking brilliant and it was a whole thing so he, he grew he grew he grew the 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 crops to feed his cattle and he used the liquid manure, the liquid liquid waste as fertilizer for those crops that he used to feed the cows. It was this whole self-sustained system. It was, the guy was like, and Mike, I don't know if you're brilliant or crazy. <laughs> it's just like, it was really, a, it was, but also the episode was hysterical. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen because Mike's, because you know, Mike in Dirty Jobs, he went out and did the work that these guys did, right? And one yeah. of the, one of the jobs this guy did, is the liquid matter, which was by far the worst part of it, right? Right. The liquid I can wa- imagine. The liquid waste that he used as fertilizer would get pumped into a holding pond. Well, one of the things that the guy would have to do that was part of his job, which Mike got to do, was he had a, had a canoe. <laughs> and when, when debris would get stuck in, like, the drainage tanks or, you know, like a tree, a tree limb would get stuck in a, in a bad spot, he'd have to go paddle out in a canoe on, on Poop Lake and go free up. You know, get the get the get the branch out of the way or whatever, right? So Mike is out that there. I just think the high heaven. It just had to be the worst smell possible. So Mike is out there singing "Oh Solo Mio" out there <laughs> in a canoe on a lake of shit. I hope he got paid really well for that show. He says, "I think I think the words he had were Oh Solo Mio.'" Don't know the words. I paddle for hours on a pond of turds. And it has stuck with me for like a decade because it was, I laughed so hard I died. <sighs> and he actually was coughing and kind of gagging at a couple points, kind of like we never go. Eh. <laughs> well, no, the methane had already been pulled out of that stuff that was in the pond. The, the first methane. thing the guy did was remove the methane. The yeah, first thing, so yeah, there the was first... no emission. Yeah, the first thing he did was remove the methane, and the methane was what he used to handle all of the heating and, and, and electrical, you know, the, the the electrical burden of his farm was <laughs> the methane from this whole process. And um, God, it was just great. 
And Mike was like, I'm not sure if you're, if you're brilliant or crazy. He's like, and the other guy goes, maybe a bit of both. And, and Mike's like, yeah, yeah, I think so. But it's, it's probably was, I, I've probably seen, you know, so many episodes of Dirty Jobs, and that was by far my favorite. It really stuck out in my mind because the guy really was brilliant, but the episode was hysterical, and it really, it really highlighted what somebody who is really determined to kind of ha- have zero impact on on the world as much as possible, and how to reduce like pollution and emissions and all that kind of stuff, and how to be kind of green and what he can do when he puts his mind to it. And he really had created this whole self sustaining system. You know, it was really fascinating. So, well, it's also a really interesting story. And um, we open the sh- we open the podcast talking about um, Adam Savage. One of the things that Adam Savage said, he says a lot. And the first time he heard him say, heard, I heard him say it. I kind of like head tilted a little. Um, he said he was a storyteller. I was like, are you? What story are you telling me? So I started watching his videos and trying to find his story, trying to find the stories that he was telling in the things that he makes. And I I spent a lot of time like just work, trying to find the story because I believed him when he said it that he was a storyteller, that he was telling stories, that he was doing this. I was like, what story are you telling me, Adam? I want to figure this out. And then I realized he's the story. He's the main character. He's the story. He is um the center of this makerspace that he has and he brings these ideas and theories and objects to life and it's amazing i find adam savage to be one of the most inspirational people on youtube and i seriously honestly recommend that you watch his show yeah um he has this fascinating way of looking at um the creative process that is just it's great it's really great i think he's better now on youtube um than he was in his Mythbusters. Not that I didn't like Mythbusters, but I agree with you that his his journey is a story. That because what was fascinating to me was the journey that they went on, and often it was Adam's tale of it. Um, in the Mythbusters days, it was Adam's perspective was the one I was really interested in. And um, me too. And now it's in his shows in his presence on YouTube, it is still the journey he goes on and why he goes on it and what caught his interest about this and why he wanted to do it. And, you know, it wasn't just, it, it, he could tell this is where we started. This is where we ended. And that could take two minutes. That's not interesting. It was the, what about this caught your attention and, and what flopped along the way and what worked and how did you make it work? That is. And so that is the story. I don't think, I don't. I don't think it sometimes even is the end result. It was. The, it's the journey he goes on, and how he shares it with us. Yeah. What he said was. He, what he says a lot is that he doesn't make how-to videos. He makes what happened videos, and he drops tidbits about his life throughout his show. Where you know you find out he worked on the, you know he worked on the Star Wars prequels. Um, you find out that he, you know, he worked, he's, he's been at the Weta workshop and that he's, um, done all these really amazing and interesting things. And he just drops them like little, like little tidbits, like they're not awesome. You know, like, like he made models for the three prequels for Star Wars. He worked at Industrial Light and Magic. What the fuck? (laughs) And so it's just, it's, you know, it's like, you know. He talks about working for um, Jamie Heineman 
um, at M4 before they did Mythbusters um, and what he was hired to work on and the movies that they worked on, um, including that one that Robin Williams in was in with the gold. What was that? With what? The Bicentennial Man. The, oh, yeah. Adam worked on the Bicentennial Man. And um, he met Robin Williams and he talked about meeting Robin Williams because Robin Williams came to his workstation and asked him about something that he was doing um, um, and asked about his tool bag. And so he was talked about, and he said that Robin Williams was just generous and amazing and um, that he really, really loved to meet him. And it was just, there's just all these interesting things that he just drops on you in the middle of a, of, of a build. And you're like, Adam, what are you doing? <laughs> how did you, how did we get here? Okay. <laughs> Build your sword later. <laughs> and, you know, apparently he's working on a full set of Mandalorian armor. I can't wait to see it. I'm I'm really excited. Um, he gets excited about Lego. He got Lego. He had to build a, a Razor Crest. He, bought, he got a Lego Razor Crest and built it on camera. And <coughs> he's just a fascinating presence on, on, on YouTube. And I highly recommend that you watch him. Because as a maker, he tells you a story every time he's on the screen. And... Um, I find him really inspiring. Yeah, because I do think he can be—you can be a maker and not be a storyteller—and so that's where there's inter interesting intersections between creative people. And he's both a maker and a mm -hmm. and a storyteller. He tells stories about his creations, and it he, and he brings and with his creations. Yeah, and he brings mm -hmm. people into his world in a way that's really fascinating and engaging and educational and memorable. And I I think that's a really rare gift. I would love to meet him. Of, of all the people that I see on YouTube or on TV, whatever, I think that meeting Adam Savage would be just fucking amazing. I hope I would, if I got to go in his shop, he'd let me hold the gun. <laughs> he lets everybody <laughs> hold the gun. <laughs> There's this prop gun he has from Blade Runner. Um, and one of the ways that he ages it and like, so that it will look like the real thing is that everybody who comes into the workshop gets to hold it. <clears throat> so that it creates age and use on the gun. People get to hold the gun. And so I really appreciate that. I just, I, I, I appreciate his, his story and I appreciate the stories that he tells. And I think that as a creator, as a maker, that's the kind of thing that, um, I want to do and I want to encourage. And I think that for, um, that Just Right has that potential as a makerspace to be all those things. We just need to figure out, um, what we want out of it what you want out of it. What, what do you want out of your makerspace? Yeah. And we we kind of have these like waxing and waning periods um, where we'll have like periods of heightened activity and then periods of like, and that's not uncommon. I think for creative spaces is that they mm -hmm. get quieter and, and then they get noisier and they get quieter and noisier. And actually I'll be honest. I would rather have that than have a creative space. that's artificially noisy all the time. Right. Like noisy, noisy for no reason. Like, because while a certain amount of um, we want people to be able to talk, like have a social interaction with their writer community. It's not primarily intended as a social space. So, you know, a writing community being treated as primarily as a social community, eventually people stop focusing on the writing and start focusing on the socializing. So that's and it's a, not productive. It's a, yeah, it's not productive. It's a distraction. So it's one thing to take a break and say and socialize and chat a little bit. That's why we have a chat space, but we don't have more than one. We have like one. We have like I think we have two spaces to just kind of go and just like drop your knickers and relax for a few minutes. <laughs> um, wow! Everybody keep their underwear on. <laughs> don't, don't sit on the furniture with no underwear. 
You don't have to keep your underwear on. You're in your own home. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let me get your hospital gown. <laughs> right, <laughs> Kira's gonna have her gown on though. Um, but when I go to creative spaces that are they tell me it's a creative space and it's just nonstop chatter and nothing productive happening. Um, it feels like a red flag to me. I, I don't mind people socializing. I mean, there have been some times when we've been super busy in sprints and people will really be chatting. But they're chatting in between sprints. They're not just talking, 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 talking. And because what happens a lot of times, I think people start to use the socializing as a distraction from their own writing. Like they're trying to not write. They're trying to find a reason not to write. And I don't want a, a maker space that people can use as a, a reason not to create. So, right. So it, it will be what people put into it. Um, and um, we've put a little less, uh, I, I put, I've put a little less time and attention on it the last couple of years, just because I think I've been a little burned out with the panorama and, um, everything life has just felt difficult and it felt like sometimes just keeping my head above water um, with my own writing has been enough of a challenge, but it's definitely on my mind that I want to, you know, do some more write-ins. Cause I mean, I revived the last big write-in we had. I don't actually, maybe it wasn't the last write-in we had, but maybe the one before that. Um, I revived a story from that write-in and I remember I had written it during the course of the write-in, the whole thing. And I remember putting it aside thinking, I don't know, this is garbage. I'm not going to do anything with it. And I reread it and I went, wow, that's rock solid. I wonder why I thought it was crap. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think a lot of times we are honestly our worst critic. Our most public worker maker space is Rough Trade. Mm -hmm. um, I find Rough Trade continuously to be inspiring. We are in the middle of our 11th year, right? Yeah. This is year mm -hmm. 11. Yeah. Um. And it is always, always, even even times when I've had to bow out for various reasons, like that one time I thought I had cancer, um, and people got bitchy with me because Harry Potter. It's okay. I'm not bitter. Um, I was really bitter at the time. But I honestly, Rough Trade, even when I don't get to participate at the level that I want to, remains utterly inspiring to me. Um, I love the energy. I love the creativity. Um... I love the work product that comes out of it and the dedication that the participants put into it and the, uh, the enthusiasm when they sign up. I just, I love all of it. I think it's amazing. And I did write two novels this year for April, basically. I was talking to somebody who I mean, I finished it late. That's true. But, you know, but, but yeah, you, you had both ideas and you, you got in and got, got done. Um, I, I was yeah, talking to somebody. 120K in 45 days. Yeah. I was talking to somebody okay. who, um, <laughs> isn't really familiar with <laughs> with rough trade and they were talking about some of the stuff that felt very artificial about the structure of it all. And um, I think they just kind of wanted to complain, but mm -hmm. I said, you know, all that stuff you're complaining about is nano. <laughs> the 30 days, the, the, the stuff that it happens that we don't start writing until the first day of the challenge. That's all nano. That's not rough trade. And they're like, Oh, well, I'm not really very familiar with nano. Well, go bitch about that to somebody else. I don't want to hear it. I mean, the first Rough Tra Trade was about participating in Nano, but I don't think that Rough Trade itself is about that. I think it's about um, the creative no. experience and it may be in a more concentrated way. No, I agree. But the, the structure, the pieces that they were very 
like bent about about in terms of challenge somebody i was talking to from one of the other fandom servers who was asking me about rough, rough trade and i was trying to explain some stuff and they're telling me that oh that all feels very artificial and i was like well like what um it was the things that are artifacts from nano like i said like not starting until the first day of the challenge and writing all together right um that it is a one month thing again that's an artifact of nano um they mentioned something about the 50k thing. I said, well, that's only in November. And again, that's an artifact of Nano. And we actually relaxed that um, for rough trade. So I don't know why you're bitching about that. I didn't. I said that nicer because I was trying to explain the situation to them. But I said, well, that we actually have a, a more relaxing. But again, that's an artifact of Nano, that word count. Um, but it seemed like all the things they talked about, they, said, they felt like it was kind of like an artificial challenge. I said... But the thing I don't understand what what they're talking about artificial. I mean, because I feel like Rough Trade is one of the more genuine writing challenges out there. If if the participants blah blah blah, blah, if the participants are being honest about when they start and when they stop, I think what they their perception of a of a challenge as is very limited to like bangs and stuff, where people go off and write something and then they present something. And they do it in their own time and in their own space and da 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 da. And um, but I said, but but that's a different kind of challenge. That's that's very different than what Rough Trade is. And we so, have one of those. And it's Quantum Bang, Quantum Bang. Go over there and do that. And I said, you know, <laughs> it's almost like you're saying that, that there can't be more than one kind of writing challenge because because Rough Trade doesn't appeal to you. Um, and they're like, no, 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 I'm not saying that. I said, but all the things you don't like about Rough Trade are actually artifacts of of nano and elements that you know rough trade has evolved but those are elements that are sort of um they're part of its dna at this point but honestly i don't know why anybody would compare rough trade even if they don't want to participate because rough trade over the past 10 and a half years has produced a lot of fiction for fandom i would i would hazard a guess and say it's upwards of several million words oh at the least so suck it and I think one of the things they didn't want to admit they didn't like is that they don't know when the stories are going to come back. But they didn't want to out, outright bitch about that. So well, that's the that's actually one of the more reasonable things they could bitch about. I get that, but rough trade isn't for readers, right? And and I think that they have probably had that conversation yeah. or seen that conversation. They knew I would probably say that it's not a reader centric challenge, and so you know, just keeping reader centric expectations off of just right is hard enough, you know, right. I do get grief once or twice a year about the structure of Rough Trade. Um, mostly from readers, but sometimes an occasional writer will be like, um, why do you encourage people to put their rough draft up? I th- I don't need to encourage that. Have you read all fanfictions.net? No kidding. Just saying. I don't need to encourage that. Um, I did actually have one reader earlier in the month get bent with me. Um, sent me an email. Oh, actually, they sent me an anonymous contact form, but it wasn't that anonymous because my contact form has an IP address, and so I know exactly who they are. Because um, <clears throat> they've commented on my site before with their real name and address, like email address, the real deal. Call them up on Facebook. I know. I mean, I literally know who they are in real life because they're dumbass. Anyways, <coughs> she said that she hated reading my work on Rough Trade because the mistakes ruined it for her. And then she couldn't get past the mistakes I'd made in the past. And therefore could not read my final product. Well, then don't read it. This is really simple. This is really simple. Then don't read it. Don't read on rough trade. That's that. That's the solution to that problem right there. But the thing is, <laughs> the thing is that she knows sometimes there's things that appear on rough trade. 
even of my own work, that never appear anywhere else. So she doesn't want to miss out, but she's also still bitching because my mistakes ruin her fun times. Yeah, I mean, there will be things. There are sometimes... Well, the whole point of Rough Trade is to be productive and in a writing environment with other writers and explore your craft. Um, mistakes happen. And even my finished works are full of mistakes because I'm not having that shit professionally edited. Fuck y'all. I think I think everybody has different, <laughs> has different experiences of Rough Trade and what they get out of it. That is what I've been like, you lady holder. I know you try. I'm the one that makes mistakes and my love for semicolons and, well, actually my love for hyphens will never end, will it, Jilly? You and your M-dashes. <laughs> you leave my M-dashes alone. I only bother your M-dashes when you have a parenthetical phrase with a comma on one side and an M-dash on the other. And then we are going to have words. <laughs> well, I don't have to my math. Like, I don't have this calcula. I have a perfect excuse for that. Um, I mean, I don't care which you use. <laughs> pick one. But even... that, that's the thing. You know, honestly, even the Bible has typos. Nothing, nothing ever printed by man is perfect. You might be able to get, with with professional editors on board, 2,000 words to be absolutely typo-free. Might. Yeah. Because the problem is, in order for something to be completely typo-free, there has to also be consistency, which means the same editor has to have read it front to back. And in order to ensure that all the consistency issues have been caught, you'd have to have multiple editors read it front to back in order to ensure that nothing slips through. So that's why you'd only, I think you'd only have no more than two or 3,000 words you could guarantee it'd be typo-free. It's just the more words there are, the more, the more it is that it just seeps into the brain and stuff just starts falling out, no matter how good the editor is. That's why I've seen New York Times articles that have typos in them. And Trust me, they've got proofreaders. They got world class editors at the New York Times. It happens. Human beings make mistakes. Yeah. And honestly, no machine could write a perfect work either because they don't have. I mean, if you've ever used a, if you've ever used a grammar checker, you know machines aren't capable of good grammar. No. <laughs> even if you pile all the rules you possibly can into it, uh, even a machine's going to make mistakes. And one of the things I have to say for people. For a lot of people, a lot of authors, what they get out of rough trade, who are very uptight in their craft, is they learn to relax, mm. and they and they need to and learn so. and learn to let things be what be what I mean. When you see an author who's struggling with getting everything perfect, put you know a placeholder in their in a, in a part and post it. It's like holy crap, they've had a breakthrough. <laughs> I haven't, Yay, I haven't, I haven't really managed it yet. But every time I see somebody put a placeholder in, I'm like, "Yay, good, good for you." Because um, I, I mean, I honestly, as much as I relax about mistakes in my rough draft, I haven't relaxed enough to put, you know, just placeholder in. Um, I'll figure out this person's name next month. Fuck all y'all. Yeah. No, I, I haven't, I haven't been there yet. I haven't done that yet. <coughs> that probably wouldn't be an issue for me because I am a plotter and I do tend to make a character list. But, you know, sometimes I have had to pants a penguin. I had to pause for a minute, do some searching for a name that would work. Well, even if I have a character list, sometimes you have a character that you didn't anticipate. Like you've got a, oh, I need a house elf to pop in and say something here. Or, you know, and I don't always have all that stuff accounted for. And then there have been actually projects I've gone into Rough Trade where I didn't name. I had a list of all my characters, but I just didn't bother to name any of them. You know, mm -mm -mm. like I had designated them by their relationship to the main character, you know, 
or actually there was one story where i designated them by their titles like you know lord so-and-so lord so like i had all the titles picked but i had no freaking clue what their names were you're making my heart hurt <laughs> she's giving me she's giving me palpitations why i mean i had a character list i just you know i haven't bothered to spend much time with a name generator and part of it, I have to tell you, part of the issue with me and names is that people in fandom really stressed me out about names for a while. Like, people get all up in my grill and make it make me believe that every name for every character I picked had to be meaningful. And that if I picked a name that had awful meaning, it needed to be for a character I didn't like. Or, you know, and the thing is... That is girl... And the, uh, yeah, it, it's dumb. It's dumb. It's dumb. I know. But the thing is, I had somebody finally one day. Somebody said, "Oh, well, this name means this would be perfect for the character." And I went, "But the thing is, this character is an adult. How did their parents know? You know, thirty some odd years ago, when they named this person this, that this would be the perfect name for them." And I said, "Well, of I course mean, if that was the case, if that was possible, then Remus Lupin's parents are real assholes, right?" They did not plan ahead appropriately. <laughs> it's just most 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 of the most of the men in the in the Harry Potter franchise um, are named after like Roman emperors. I mean, what is that telling us? So, Luffy <laughs> <laughs> McWolfson. Uh, but it, people just get me really got me. You know, I was more a little more impressionable about those kinds of things that we really wrapped around the axle about names. And it got to the point that I hated naming characters. I just hated spending all that time looking up meanings of names of all dumbass things. And now do you know what I do? I use a fucking name generator. I just, I just, until something. I, I love name generators. I just, What's the last time I looked for a name with a meaning? Oh, probably intangible because that was because Buck's, uh, because Maddie and. Daniel named him out of, a ba- um, out of a baby book. Well, that's different. I mean, it's one thing for like a, a parent to pick a name. Yeah. For um, but a lot of times you just you know you name a kid you know oh, I like this word or I like that name or I'm naming my kid after my best friend or whatever. Um, and uh, but people got me like I've I've been sitting there like agonizing over tertiary characters' meaning of their name and it was just it's so dumb. So now I just sit there with my name generator, clicking next and next and next and next and next or generate. I get the generate button. I find one I like, just you know, just by the way it sounds. Like that sounds good. Um, I spent a lot of time with the fantasy name generator when I was naming all those damn dwarves. Fireborn. <laughs> that was a lot of fucking work, y'all. I hope you appreciate all those fucking names. <laughs> That was I, at least two hours of my life. I'll never get back. I pre- I appreciate it. <laughs> I, and the last, I have to Wait, last, let me tell you guys something. I'm gonna cock tease them. You go, you go ahead and do your thing. Talk. Talk. Okay. So I had one of the last times I got somebody to help me with a name thing. I needed to name a character in Harry Potter story, and I had a last name picked out, but I didn't have a first name picked out. And I had a list, I needed the name to be French. So I had a list of French names that sounded, you know, stuffy enough to be in Harry Potter. And I sent it to a friend of mine and I said, pick a name. And she picked the name and she sent it back to me. And she said, here, this one. And I I have to assume she didn't pick it for the reason it looked like she picked it later. I think she probably picked it because it was near the top of the list and she was being lazy. (laughs) But what it wound up being is I named this character Cassius Fadanus. He was the mind healer in Restoration. And I wasn't thinking anything else about it, right? 
next thing I know, oh, it's so great to see Kira's OC in your story. Da, 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 da. And I was like, <laughs> that's not his name, though. I know it's not his name. <laughs> it's not his full name. I, I'm like, so I can't even. And so when I realized, and so then I got really upset. I'm like, oh my God, did I steal one of characters, Kira's OCs? And then I go and I looked and I went, no, I didn't. And I was like, what? I can't even have a character with the same fucking first name. And I was just so annoyed. And then I was like, and then I was going, did she pick it because it was familiar because of Kira's story? And then I'm starting to get paranoid. And then I was like, I hate this shit. I hate it. I hate fandom. I hate names. I hate naming OCs. This all sucks. I hate the world. And like every time I turn around on that story for months, oh, it's so great to see Kira's OC in your story. I'm like, oh, God. I'm so sorry. And I'd be like, it's not that deep. Kira, I find so I put Kira's OC his name. Da, 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 da. I actually do know his name. Um, I forget his last name. C- Cassius. Arno. Yeah, thank you. Cass- Arno. Thank you. It would have come to me eventually. <laughs> well, I was responding. I tried like three or four people. I had to tell her, her OC's last name is Cassius Arno. And then, I mean, it's like, and then one person thought that you had made up the name Cassius. And I was like, no. That's literally a French name, y'all. It's a French name. A guide out of a name generator. <laughs> I was like, I, on the one hand, I appreciate the level of creativity y'all think that Kira has. That she is not just, you know, cr- writing stories, but she is making up names wholesale. <laughs> but, no. So, yeah, so it was, so between, there was just like this, this whole perfect storm with me and names and at one point I just went fuck it I hate names and I just got to this thing of where I, would, I I hit this block about naming original characters and I started going into project after project after project after project after project with none of my characters named I'd have lists I knew who they were but I, they wouldn't have names <laughs> and I'd be like I get to the point where I needed them a story I go I guess they need a name <sighs> okay so and then I said you know something I just need to start using name generators and who cares what the name means and then, is this the cock tease? Mm. That is a cock tease indeed. Is this a sequel? <laughs> yeah. It's like There's, there's going to be um, three. Um, there will be, well, Fireborn do- is done. Warhide is book two. And um, book three will be Wind Rider. Oh, okay. And which one is November? Because um, November is Warhide. Okay. I mean, I mean, November is a dimension challenge, so it certainly fits right. thematically. I mean, they, they both. Well, I, I can't do both because we have to do one of the. We got to do two themes separately, um, but that's going to be. Um, yeah, that's November. November is new dimension or what? What was the other one? I fucking forget. Because you can't. Like do it's the two not theme. even my own. You can do the two themes together if you if you can fit them in the same story, but you may not be able to. Yeah, you could either. I, I, what I was, what I was gonna say is I can't do two dimensional travels. Oh, yeah. Um, but as long as that isn't the main theme, I could have a separate theme for um, Windwalker. I mean, Wind Rider. But Ragnarok's last, Ragnarok's use name is Wind Rider. For those of you who don't quite get the connection. <coughs> <coughs> but um, yeah, I had this thing when I was um kind of working on the plot for let's see november is canon divergence or in new dimension yeah i can i could probably do both yeah yeah i could totally do both uh, that, that'll be fun um but uh i was having this this moment and those of you who are familiar who, who've read fireborn um, you know what actually let, let's end the podcast before we do this okay 
Okay. I want to thank you guys for hanging out with me and also for being on this journey with us. Um, and all the other writers in fandom that you um, that you read and support and that you are gracious and kind to. I really, really thank you for that. Uh, I hope that going forward um, that you find your own makerspace, no matter what it may be. Uh, and that you find um, wh whatever creative spark that you have, you, know, you find a way to nurture it in a way that makes you happy. So um, this will be probably the only podcast this month because there'll be some traveling for some of us and others of us are getting a present that has to be unpacked and set up. That'd Indeed. be me. I'm getting a present. Because <laughs> the 17th year anniversary apparently is Alienware. <laughs> that anyway. is so cool. <laughs> Thank you guys for hanging out with, um, with us. We really appreciate it. And um, have a good night. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone.